Before we get into this episode of Monster Kid Radio, two quick notes. One, even though this episode is dedicated to the HP Lovecraft Film Festival and Cthulhu Con, Con, it doesn't mean I'm not bringing you some other Monster Kid Radio content. In fact, I've got some feedback that we're going to be going over at the end of this episode, so stay tuned for that. It's about previous episodes of Monster Kid Radio, and I'm grateful for the feedback. So we're going to do that at the end of the show. Before all that, though, the Lovecraft Film Festival and Cthulhu Con coverage, well, I brought my Zoom recorder with me and recorded as much as I could using different microphones and settings. Did the best that I could, but because of the different microphone settings and the different environments in which I was recording, the audio quality is varying. Now, I did some work here behind the scenes at Monster Kid Radio headquarters, and I did the best that I could to make it sound great. I think you're still going to dig it. I just wanted to give you a heads up. Okay, on with the show. Anybody interested in grabbing a couple of burgers and hit the cemetery? The music that you're hearing is the band Genki Genki Panic. They're a surf band based out of Chattanooga, Tennessee. The album is Ghoulie High Harmony. The director's cut. The song is HPV Lovecraft. They gave us permission to play their music on the show back in the day. Welcome to Monster Kid Radio. I am your writer, host, producer, Derek Kim Cook, and I'm here to talk about the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. Although this time around might be a little bit different because it is October, which means it's time for the HP Lovecraft Film Festival and Cthulhu Con. I am here as a guest again, and I'm thrilled. This is going to be a good time. If you hear a little bit of background noise, it's because I'm hanging out outside the Hollywood Theater right now, waiting to get in. I could probably flash my guest pass and get in now if I wanted to, but you know, it's cooler out here, and uh, I'm looking forward to running into people. I know Chris McMillan and Dominique Lamsey's are going to be here, as well as a bunch of other old friends and potentially new. This should be a treat. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to this year's festival quite a bit, and uh, I hope you guys and gals dig this episode as much as I'm sure I'm going to enjoy recording it and then editing it later. Stay tuned. Let's see what happens next, shall we? This panel is technically called, what is it, Primer on the Cthulhu Mythos? Cthulhu Mythos 101, what's it called? Cthulhu Mythos, what is it? Primer to the Cthulhu Mythos. All right, the... um, uh, uh, I guess we will begin by having the lovely panel introduce themselves. I am your moderator, Kenneth Height. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Please, please hold all your applause until all the panel... No, don't. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm a full-time tabletop board game designer. Uh, most recently, Trail of Cthulhu, Knights Black Agents, Dracula Dossier. I am currently lead designer for Vampire the Masquerade 5th Edition. And the author of Tour to Lovecraft, The Tales, soon to be followed by Tour to Lovecraft, The Destinations, and many wonderful mythos excrescences all around it. Um, that's me. 
Next to me. My name is Dominique Lampsey. Um, I write stories about dead people. Uh, Batman is my boyfriend. Um, and I'm a devotee of Yogg-Sothoth. Yay! There you go. I am D.B. Spitzer. I am a worshiper and cultist of Sothagwa. I also host People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, a poet and artist, and this doesn't have a pop filter. <laughs> no pop. Uh, my name is Tim Uren. Uh, I am a co-host of the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society podcast. Uh, I am worked in the gaming industry, writing for some uh, uh, like some Arkham Horror and some Eldritch Horror and Cthulhu games like that. Uh, I'm also actor type person, and if you've seen any of the Chuck and Dexter videos that run around, I am Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> And um, uh, uh, also on the panel is Cody Goodfellow, uh, magisterial author of Radiant Dawn and Ravenous Dusk. Buy them both if you don't already own them. Uh, Cody will be played by nothing whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) All right. uh, The topic is uh, the Cthulhu Mythos, the primer, the what is the Cthulhu Mythos, which is almost the dumbest question you can ask about the Cthulhu Mythos. So I figured we'll answer it. And then um, you guys can ask the, the smart questions. Uh, I will begin with a couple of observations, and then we'll see if anybody's got some other thoughts. My, fir- my, my, my main observation is that Cthulhu Mythos is one of those things that is perhaps more helpfully defined by use of what they call prototype theory. And prototype theory is that if you're saying, what is furniture? You ask 100 people, what is furniture? And chair is on everybody's list. So that means chair is probably pretty central to what is furniture. <laughs> and maybe one guy says aquarium. You're like, well, okay. So that guy, aquarium is furniture. And your particular line in your head is how many people have to say aquarium for it to count as furniture? So there are going to be, if you ask 100 people, uh, what is the Cthulhu mythos? Well, 99 of them will say, I don't know. But if you ask 100 of us, what is the Cthulhu mythos? And you get... 10, 15, 25 titles, probably the first dozen or so of those titles are all going to be the same titles, the same authors. That'll be the center of that little blob. And then as you go away from that, you get into entirely pointless discussions <laughs> about is this or is this not the Cthulhu mythos. Now, there are other um, uh, hard and fast uh, rules, which are, I am heavily implying, bogus. But let's see if... <laughs> The rest of the distinguished panel have thoughts on what is the Cthulhu mythos, and then we will, I promise, we will take questions about interesting questions about the Cthulhu mythos. Well, I first will say uh, Cthulhu mythos, something that Augie Dog Durleth created to make money for Arkham House. Is That's that's a Cthulhu mythos, right? I mean... Is it? I mean, people wrote mythos stories before <laughs> Augie Dog Durleth. <laughs> I think that may be technically where the phrase comes from, but not necessarily how it's used. Not how it's used, yes. Um, Cthulhu Mythos, a collection of writers all using a shared universe together, whether it be H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, ever hear of the guy, uh, Robert E. Howard, Clark Ashton Smith, hooray. And, uh, I mean, there's, there's always new people adding to it. Some are out there. <laughs> Some are in here. One of them is at this very table, except he's not. Yes. <laughs> in spirit and beard. Yes. Uh, okay. Sort of a, a genre of horror, a subgenre of horror that is um, often called cosmic horror. Um, referring to 
uh, both a little bit of blending of science fiction and horror, but also just the incredible, incredible scale of the things that are threatening to humanity. Okay. Dominique? Um, for me, the first thing that kind of pops into the head is, again, mythos, mythology. Because Lovecraft just created all the gods and all the ways that you are screwed up and worship them. And that's what stands out to me. So again, going back to that shared universe thing. Okay, so we have um, uh, a, uh, a genre definition, a literary critical definition, a historical definition. Uh, pick your favorite. <laughs> um, uh, uh, I think what I'm going to do is see if anybody's got a um, uh, like a favorite thing that is in the Cthulhu Mythos, and it can either be you know like an old standard that you just love to see people cover. Or it can be something new and cool that maybe you, people don't know about. But give, give, give an example of one of those things that if I were to ask you to name in that penumbra, what would you say is in that penumbra that you think people ought to know about? Or ought to know how good it is, even if they already know about it. Crazy people. Uh, Lovecraft was very good at making crazy people. And all the other Lovecraftian authors are crazy people. It's crazy cultists. It's people doing weird things for reasons that we don't there understand. We go. just say crazy people. Oh, <laughs> 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 Wow! Are we wasting our time? <laughs> I was actually uh, more thinking about titles or authors, but tropes is also cool. Okay. Um, we, let's go down and, and keep doing tropes then. All right. No, uh, one thing I think of when I think of the Cthulhu mythos is I think of forbidden tomes, uh, books with names that are hard to say when you're uh, half awake recording your podcast or <laughs> trying to, you know, be like, oh, you know, that uh, book that I read in that book. In Anyway, uh, I, I think of, um, I don't know, books like uh, the Necronomicon and um, nameless cults and things of that nature. That's, that's, that's what I think of when I think of the Cthulhu mythos and the deities that, that one can call forth with them if they have a good copy. Uh, to combine tropes and authors, uh, there's a couple of authors that I'm very fond of uh, that Lovecraft drew from. Arthur Machen. Machen. Machen, thank you. Arthur Machen. Machen. <laughs> uh, and Robert W. Chambers. Um, both of my I very much enjoy because of the way they present insanity and uncertainty of what you're perceiving and facts shifting on you in a way that uh, I like. Right. Uh, to me, then, uh, I, I guess picking up the tropes, uh, hopefully this wasn't what, uh, and uh, where conversation stopped dead when I came in, but uh, to me, it, it, it's empty corners of the map. Uh, places in the world where we uh, where we're unable to enforce any sort of civilization or or even to exist uh, places that are still other that you you know can only really come to know through a 1956 world book encyclopedia in the corner of your, uh, of your uh, school library you know when you first come across them in his stories um, and uh, previously, everyone has given their uh, uh, nickel answer to what is the Cthulhu Mythos so that we don't have to answer that question. Um, so, uh, we, and I gave a prototype uh, theory answer, and we've had literary critical, genre theory, and historical. So if you've got a, a take on what is the Cthulhu Mythos. 
well, to me, the Cthulhu mythos is, is it's pulp existentialism. It's a materialist horror that maybe there is maybe there is a, a, a prime mover behind everything, and and so seen seen through that lens, to me, that's what separates it from other kinds of other kinds of horror, uh, from other kinds of uh, uh, supernatural horror, particularly. Right. I, I, and this is a dispute. I one of the few disputes that I let myself get dragged into is when you know people say something like, "Like, wow, what I think people don't get about it, what they don't appreciate about the movie of it, is that it's cosmic horror." Like, no, no. Yeah. the the novel no, kind of is, but the movie is definitely not. Yeah, uh, the well, well, even 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 with the with the, with the book, because the guy brought up, oh, because the spider is like this cosmic evil. I'm like, yeah, but but then he dirtless it to to death with yeah. the turtle, right? Yeah, and then all the toilets literally explode. Right, yeah, and uh, uh, and and that 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 represents that a Manichaean view of the universe where there is a good to appeal to, right? Uh, then then evil is really just kind of a sock puppet, and that's that's why to me my. To me, the most resonating cosmic horror I've ever read was uh, um, Milton's Paradise Lost. The scene when when Satan is going down into creation and God is sitting on the throne and he watches and he sees it and Jesus points it out to him and he's like, hey, he's going to f- up everything. And, and God just observes, yes, he will, son, but don't worry. I've got a plan. Yeah. <laughs> What's it going to be? You, you'll know it when you see <laughs> oh, it. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, he'll just to, it out. to know, to, to imagine that, that, that this is all a machine set in motion by somebody who knows how it's going to work, to me, would be so much more horrible than even the notion that there are gods in this or larger, inimical, uh, inscrutable beings whose, whose, whose processes we don't understand. Uh, so a, a, a theological take. Yeah. Really. Okay. Fantastic. Hopefully we have answered the question of what is the Cthulhu mythos, and no one has to ask, uh, is X in the Cthulhu mythos? Um, with, that, with that question fully answered, quintuply answered, does anyone have any questions? If not, we can go back to the panel and have some more things. Yes. So the microphones were set at the front of the room with the panelists. I did not have a microphone in the crowd. So every once in a while I might kick in here and tell you what the question was. And this time around the question was, why – does everybody bag on August Durleth? Here is the panel's response. It's, it, okay. it's fashionable to bag on Durleth, but yeah. but the, the 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 thing is about about Durleth. Durleth was sort of uh, Lovecraft's Boswell. He he curated his work, and he never let anybody else forget it or try to also curate his work. Uh, it became his his stuff, his stuff to play with. Uh, uh, Fritz Leiber's daughter, I believe, is Dennis Hutchison's wife, uh, was around him a lot and says that he was very much, he used the mythos kind of like a set of playing cards. He just needed to write a story up in these mountains with hiking, so there will be an air elemental, let's, oh, I don't know, Hastur, and then they fight him with a fire elemental, let's say Cthulhu. And he very much kind of, I mean, nothing is sadder than when something that's really that was really magical, that was really amazing, and felt really different is suddenly reduced down to a formula. And suddenly, everything that was cool about it, you can see what he did, and yet somehow it doesn't add up to the same. It doesn't get up and dance. And and so a, a lot of people. I mean, I know I did this. I, I read through love, all the Lovecraft I could find in in like eighth grade, and then started finding the Duralist stuff. And it sort of seemed to scratch the same itch, but it was so much more mundane. But worst of all, 
Durleth set everything up into a system. Lovecraft was still very, very evanescent about about things. He would sometimes sometimes the myths were contradictory. Sometimes they would uh, they would seem to shed light on a whole larger system, only to have it kind of undone from another perspective in another story. So it felt like a mythology. It felt like a living, breathing thing with a lot of perspectives, a lot of prophets, a lot of heresy. And Durleth set it up into a system. He had so-and-so was so, you know, Hastur and, and Cthulhu are half-brothers, and they're descendants of Quetzal, you know. The, 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 he, just, he just went all, like, on beyond zebra with, with this stuff. And he also created a bunch of good guys. There was a force of elder gods, and the great old ones, he supposed, the great old ones couldn't have just fallen out of power because of, you know, the geological age or something. He, he supposed that these good guys must have forced them down into these holes and prisons. And thus, these good guys can be appealed to. And they're kind of inscrutable and weird, too. But they offer the, they offer the, 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 the sense that there is a right, a right in the universe and there is a higher authority of which the great old ones are just an aberration. And so everything that made Lovecraft's universe unique was suddenly it was just like anybody else's, at least in his hands. Does anyone want to uh, give two cheers for a good old doggy? Or is this panel going to be like a, a Khmer Rouge um, uh, a re-education I session? I yeah. say it as a sort of backhanded compliment. Um, I've always perceived his work uh, as like fan fiction, both in the admiration of the person who's very enthusiastic about this and expressing how much they like it by writing about it, and also condemnation of not nearly as well as the source material. I, I personally would like to say that uh, Durla's work kind of reminds me of a combination between like remedial Lovecraft and when your favorite showrunner is kicked off the show and they just use the series Bible to like get out the last few seasons before people stop watching is kind of what Durla's kind of felt like to me. But that's my opinion. Well, I've actually read some of the stuff that's not Mythos that Sterleth wrote, and it's actually pretty good. He wasn't a bad writer. He just yeah. latched onto something he shouldn't have latched onto, I think. And and to me, that's one of the reasons that uh, some of his stuff, the stuff that's set in Wisconsin, Thing That Walked in the Wind, mm-hmm. uh, Dweller in Darkness, um, and Ithaqua, are actually kind of good uh, in a way that his posthumous collaborations are not. Because there he really is just trying to write pastiche. Yeah. But when he's sort of writing his own stuff, some of it is actually effective. I mean, I don't think it's, you know, Lovecraft, but none of us are Lovecraft. Yeah, he was able to do really great stuff with the atmosphere of the Great Lakes region. Yeah, he was, right. he was a, a, an avid spelunker and mm-hmm. hiker and stuff. And so he was able to create that sense of otherness in the woods that you'll, it's, it, it always just feels like that other shoe full of sh- when, mm-hmm. uh, when, when the mythos actually shows up in an otherwise pretty, what looked like it was going to be a good ghost story. Right. And it, 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 yeah, he is, he is one of those, and I think Derleth would even have said that He's one of those authors that, um, uh, you know, he wrote in order to, to, you know, to make money, to sell. To, in, in some cases, he wrote to keep weird tales alive. Like, you know, Dorothy McElwraith would write him and say, we need another Lovecraft. Otherwise, we're not going to have the issue next year. And he's like, okay, I'll, I'll find something in the basement. And he would, you know, <laughs> sort of crank it out. And he, and he wrote, you know, to fill out an anthology. Like, I have just barely enough. I better write another story to fill. And I think anyone who's a working writer sort of understands that impulse. And we just hope that uh, the stuff we write in a hurry doesn't come across as clearly. But something like um, Trail of Cthulhu, which has got sort of the propulsive energy of Sax Romer, but none of the cosmic 
that that uh, that that Cody was talking about kind of undoes all the good that something like the thing that walked on the wind did in the first place. So, I mean, with with Durleth, more than with many authors, you really sort of have to pick and choose, and you can you can put together a, a slim anthology of really good cosmic horror stories by Durleth, and Durleth's Cthulhu is ironically more cosmic than Lovecraft's because Durleth's Cthulhu is the entire dimension. And, you know, you open a door in Peru, and there's Cthulhu. And you open a door in Massachusetts, and there's Cthulhu. And you open a door wherever, and there's Cthulhu. And Lovecraft's Cthulhu is just a big old alien who lives underneath the Pacific Ocean. He's, you know, a science fiction creature. So in in a way, Derleth has cosmic instincts, but he, you know, he has that Manichaean sense that you're talking about and backs away from it. And I, I think it's that backing off almost as much as the hurrying through that sort of um, uh, comes across as you know, not quite the good stuff, or in many cases, not remotely the good stuff. It's it's flaming young compared to a lot of Lynn Carter. Oh yeah, this, uh, this, there is a there is a pattern for people to become even better editors and even worse writers in the course of the Lovecraft <laughs> mythos, and that pattern has not stopped. Yeah. <laughs> no, it keeps on keeping on. Yeah, Lynn, Carter would use any a story as an excuse to write a big chunk. Of, uh, of 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 mythos history of uh, of of, of co- cosmology, and uh, or, or he would just have a character sit down and start reading from uh, from the Eltdown shards or uh, the, uh, or the Cult of Goulet, and he would just write verbatim just a couple of a couple of chapters because he would just get off on that, and that was yeah. that was really fun to him. But uh, yeah, not really fun for you know the average reader. Uh, any other questions? Any more questions? Further questions? Uh, another question? Don't make us go on to Lumley. We we'll, can keep we'll, doing we'll roll this. right over Lumley. Okay, oh, yeah, let's not get to Lumley. You're, you're going to make us talk about Brian Lumley. I can tell it. <laughs> All right. Um, Brian, uh, since we're on the uh, uh, Praising with Faint Dams uh, <laughs> section, uh, Cody, do you have a Brian Lumley story that still works for you now? Is there any Lumley that is still salvageable? Oh gosh, like the the, the big C was really neat. I, I I love a lot of his concepts. My my frustration is just, and I and I can't fault him the way that I could a lot of other authors because it's a philosophical conception. Yeah. Is it's he he likes his heroes to win mm-hmm. and and uh, taken to that its logical conclusion. You know, they're they're facing off against the the, the minions of the CCD, which sounds right, like yeah. a, a, a a dangerous you know dental association <laughs> and. And and it and it becomes kind of a it becomes kind of a, a, a kind of a vacation or kind of a kind of a trifle. So, yeah, his 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 some of his early stuff I liked beneath the moors beneath yeah, the moors had that Oakdean sustained is feeling. Of, yeah, yeah, the horror at Oakdean was 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 really great. Uh, and I tried to ask him about this about this at the I think the first one of these festivals that I came to, and he was at and he got really upset. <laughs> To say the well, least, he was he was really upset at, at being questioned about it, and I wasn't trying to question him in a way that why did I I, I yeah. felt like you were wrong to do that, but how did, why did why were you drawn to the Cthulhu mythos when you wanted to have heroes you know who yeah. who, who who kick ass right didn't didn't the two feel kind of antithetical or immiscible to you and how did you resolve that but he didn't want to yeah. engage with it. and and some of the Titus Crow stuff taken entirely as its own yeah is pretty good adventure fiction yeah I find yeah. And his Dreamland stuff is yeah, fun. It's, it's great. His hero fun. and Elden stuff was mm-hmm. was was it had the it had the dreamlike feeling and the and the whimsicality there made total sense. Yeah. So but, those are great. Oh my the, god! The Cthulhu mythos, as it's currently conceived in a broad multimedia sort of way, 
has kind of mushed up with pulp adventure in a way yeah. that's not necessarily true to the books. Sure, right. Sure. Well, the, I mean, people that came into it through the through the games. I mean, the game came out right after I I discovered the the, the fiction. But I know the 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 games it, in whether it was the TSR or the Chaosium su- supplement mashed together. You know, a, a Priestess version of the mythos yeah. and had and so there were some of you know some of Cutners and some of and some of Lumleys and some of Derlitz monsters got put into canon and. Uh, and I, I don't think that's I don't think that's bad. I think the the, the, the games like the fiction encourage you to use as much or as little makes sense to you in the in the course of your of your storytelling. because uh, that was that was what they what they meant for it to be. What's what's fascinating is that there was this this rush up until the seventies or eighties, or not really a rush, but a real impulse on the part of everybody that was contributing to the Cthulhu mythos to add their deity, their entity, their race, their forbidden tome. And, and to have that get accepted, accepted into common parlance and everybody else would, would share it. And it feels like for the last like 20 years or so, maybe since the game, for the most part, everybody's kind of doing a Dead Zone duet with Lovecraft. There, you don't see a whole lot of cross stuff. You do see more of a reduction towards, towards purism, towards just kind of using the canonical handful of original stories as your, as your jumping off point and kind of we bypass each other, which is, it's, it's, I mean, if you read a, a, an anthology of stories that are all about the world, you know, the end of the world, they're all going to step on each other's toes and they're all going to be kind of at cross purposes. And so it's going to you know, kind of be hitting reset each time. And it kind of raises the bar of suspension of disbelief each time. And so you want for there to be more of that room and you want for their for each author to kind of have staked out their own thing, and the best thing to do is kind of use wary techniques of uh, of nodding to or Easter egging other things in it. I, I had I wrote a story that was in a that's in a new uh, Ramsey Campbell, Campbell tribute anthology called Darker Companions. That's about uh, uh, Christian biblical archaeologists excavating uh, the actual city of Sodom uh, in Jordan. And uh, uh, in it, I had one of the archaeologists berating another one and saying, we can't have another Skua Island. And he was citing that as a particular example of really egregiously irresponsible archaeology. So, you know, try and find these, find these, these things. But it is kind of a, it has nucleated and become a whole bunch of micro Lovecraftian universes, much more than it's, than it's a coherent body that... That's 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 continued to branch out, and I think that's good. I don't think we need another Forbidden Tome or another Great Old One right. or another Servitor Race with every single every single uh, entry. I don't know. Do you guys? Well, we need my Forbidden Tome. Well, there, mine. <laughs> Obviously, yeah. yeah. Pencils down, everybody. Depends on the story. The the, the, the Necuronicon is terrific. I mean, I. I think we are all in favor of that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dominique, you have thoughts on uh, either Nucleation or Brian Lumley? Um, Brian Lumley, no, not really, because everything I've ever read of his, it's just like, eh, I can't even remember what I've actually read of his. Um, and for the Nucleation, I don't know, I, I guess when I came into Lovecraft, it had already, that had started already. Sure, yeah. Because um, for me, I never viewed like Tathagwa and the ones that everybody else invented as part of it. So I, that's always kind of the way it's been for me. So 
that's how it is. I don't really have an opinion on it. So for you, um, if someone else is writing something said in, say, Ramsey Campbell's Severn Country or in Clark Ashton Smith's Hyperborea, you do or don't uh, respond with the same interest that you would if someone's writing about uh, Rolia yeah or uh, Lang or whatever. Okay. And that's just because the you like the classy old stuff. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. I have to say, there's some um, Henry Kuttner out there that I've ran across, like oh, digging around for uh, public domain stories for my podcast. That I'm just like, this is this is a lot more actiony and pulpy and a lot more interesting, but not as well written as this or that. But it's it's definitely part of the Cthulhu mythos. Uh, someone goes down to Mexico and finds something in some ancient caves and brings it back, and hell breaks loose or. I don't know what you want to call it besides hell, but Heck. I don't know. It's, it's fun. It's like there's so many different flavors of the Cthulhu mythos that it's like, it's really hard to say what is and what isn't the Cthulhu mythos, but no, it's I not. We just did it five times. Panel, so. <laughs> <laughs> we should have a panel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is what's a Cthulhu mythos. Anybody else have any thoughts, questions? Yes, Derek. As you can tell, I actually asked the next question, but again, there wasn't a mic on me. I was asking the panel what they thought about Robert E. Howard and other contemporaries to Lovecraft writing within this so-called Cthulhu mythos. Okay, does anyone have any thoughts on the people who are, you know, playing the game with Lovecraft, the Howards and the Smiths, and do you, do you want to include, like, Mackin and Blackwood, who are also his contemporaries, or, although Blackwood had not very nice things to say about Howard, but still... <laughs> Well, they 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 corresponded, um, but I mean, the notion of 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 Howard uh, of Howard Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard conversing together. I mean, the only thing that they had in common was that they were both totally born in the wrong era, and they, and they had a talent for yarn spinning, uh, and, and so they would uh, in their correspondence they would talk way past each other, and they would kind of inspire each other and fire each other up, but they were totally talking about different things and different kinds of dreams, uh, which is what makes. Uh, Howard's contributions to the mythos, you know, people in the monolith, uh, and uh, to me, the, the the most most stirring is the the little people, which is a weird western, right. uh, which is kind of in the continuum of the uh, 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 Brand McMorn stories. And Brand McMorn did the, the, the faced against these these proto-human, basically kind of degenerate serpent people race that uh, inhabited the British Isles before the Picts came. And uh, they were these, you know, stirring, gnarly sword and sorcery uh, yarns in the Brand McMorn stories, and uh, and even more so in in the westerns. But there's one called The Little People, where this uh, this uh, rancher faces off against and finds this this city of these these shriveled, creepy snake people living underneath his ranch, and he uh, puts them to the torch, and he goes back home, and he drinks some whiskey, and he considers what he's seen, and he eats a gun and blows his brains out. And it was a really weird coda to end this story where he had pretty much ridden off into the sunset. And then you just see what happens when he gets home. And this kind of recognition of how trauma really can unseat you even after you've won was something I've never seen that in any Western ever. And uh, Howard was certainly the most, one of the most morbidly inclined in his Westerns. Uh, and so... It is really illuminating to see how a lot of his peers uh, 
who were peers only in, you know, they had a shared trade and a shared fascination. They never actually, you know, broke bread together. Uh, how the Cthulhu mythos reflected uh, in, in their in, in their stories. Smith's stories, his Hyperborea and his Atik stories, take on a very sanguine, very, uh, not really whimsical, but darkly humorous uh, story where the gods just kind of give us what we deserve. And uh, after Howard and after after the two Howards uh, passed away, uh, Smith essentially stopped writing. He was in a very intense period for about a decade where he churned out uh, several dozen stories and essentially stopped and just kind of puttered around doing doing poetry and sculpture for the rest of his life. And so the influence that this idea had when it was live, when they were going back and forth, uh, was very galvanizing. I mean, we may not have, have ever turned to writing those kinds of fantasy stories if not for for the uh, uh, exhortation of uh, of Lovecraft, and and that's that. It's so weird. I don't know if you guys see this when you go to a, go to a, like a comic or a science fiction convention. You walk around on the dealer's floor. And as the economies tighten and things get more and more corporate, everything's reduced more and more down to brands, and that's what people are buying. They want their their Marvel and DC and and uh, and and, and uh, Star Wars stuff. And uh, if you're a third party, if you can get away with somehow mashing those things and making them make out with each other, then you might be able to eke out an existence. But Cthulhu is one of the few open source brands that people will come to and go, "Oh, I need to get some Cthulhu stuff. I need that that kind of a that kind of magic in my life." That anybody can do and nobody can get sued uh and 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 that that uh it, to me is a whole other level in in what a what a uh poignantly touching inspiring uh body of mythology it is any any uh thoughts from anybody else on the contemporaries the relationship yeah, i don't know at that time what the sort of sense of what a canon was it's Super important now, but I, I just in love with that notion of these guys who were building a universe and just happy and open to like share things, share their ideas, take other ideas, and know that it's out of love and respect rather than stealing my idea. Yeah, yeah. There was a generosity in it from this, and, and also part of it was the fun of pranking the audience. Yes. yes, I mean Lovecraft loved that someone would run across the Necronomicon in a Clark Ashton Smith story or. And yeah. say, oh, oh I thought real? that was a fictional thing. Yeah. It, it must be real. It's in two author stories. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, and the, and the yeah, and, and and the author of the Cult of de Gaulle was is, right. is the Comte d'Arlette. Exactly. You know? yeah. yeah, and yeah, the Clark Ashton, the priest of uh, of Atlantis, and yeah, the, the, it was a lot of it was a lot of it was gameplay from the start. Killing each other off in each other's books is always fun. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Mostly Robert Block. Um, when Frank Long, uh, Frank Bolton, I've long put Lovecraft in the story, he survived. Yes. <laughs> so that's nice of him, I guess. <laughs> Don't really have anything to add to this one. Okay. All right. Do you have a? Do you have a, a one of the? I mean, you were you're saying that you focus on the Lovecraft. So none of the contemporaries have really spoken to you. Or? Well, I I do like Howard. Um, for me, because like I can't speak to the relationship or anything like that, because that's kind of. I don't get into that, and I just right, want to yeah. read what you wrote. Because um, what I really like about Howard is, because when you read a Lovecraft story, it's very big. There's these big things moving, and they're making smaller things happen. But Howard took that, and he made it even smaller to where, like Cody was talking about in the story that I already forgot the name of. The Little People. Um, the Little People. Um, what actually happens to the human at the end? 
And that's the kind of thing I like. Because, you know, big stuff happening is cool, and Cosmic Horror is cool, but it has a cost for people. And Howard was always very good about doing that in his stories. Not just his mythos stuff, but in his other horror stories, and even the Conan stories. There was always that human cost that we saw. And that's what I... That's why I like him best of Lovecraft's contemporaries. Yeah, well, he's, he certainly had a, a, a much better handle on, on human agency. I mean, yeah, well, Lovecraft he, wasn't particularly interested in human he, agency. He'd actually met humans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big difference. Um, the, the, the thing that I like about Lovecraft's, uh, the, the notion of his contemporaries, is that Lovecraft writes his first Dunzanian story before he ever reads Dunzany, and he writes his first Mackin story before he ever reads Mackin. Yeah. And then you can see the point where he goes and he reads Dunzany, he's like, oh, I've, I've done it wrong, and he <laughs> just runs back and redoes the story again uh, with a slightly different title. And the same thing with Mackin. He's, he's written uh, The Lurking Fear, and then he reads Mackin, and he's like, oh, that's how you do creepy things hiding under the ground. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to write Rats on the Walls now. <laughs> <laughs> And, 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 and I'm going to write Dunwich Horror, and I'm never going to stop being Arthur Mackin. And I, and I like the notion that Lovecraft is sort of, you know, I don't, I don't know if he's sensitized by reading bad authors who have ripped off Mackin and Dunzany before, because he was a, he was a avid consumer of real garbagey pulp magazines. Um, or was it just a, it's a matter of steam engineing time, and in 19, 19- 20, you're supposed to write about creepy things that live underneath the ground because it's creepy time. It's creepy underground time, just like the 2000s is zombie time, and you can't get away from it. And then so that notion that these, you know, what later on we come back and we draw these little lines. Oh, he was influenced here, and he was influenced here. But a lot of it is just coming out of that weird melange or the muse or whatever you want to call it that, that Lovecraft is, is, is battening himself on almost unknowingly. And then when people batten on Lovecraft, knowingly, it becomes super interesting. But there's other people who are sort of writing Lovecraft before Lovecraft. Things like um, uh, uh, The Place Called Dagon, which is a Lovecraft story. It just happens to have been written by Irvin S. Cobb well before Lovecraft wrote anything. So there's all kinds of weird sort of elements that you you, you look at. Or you look at someone like A. Merritt, who is already super uh, uh, well-known and didn't need Lovecraft for anything. I mean, he, he was part of the challenge from beyond Round Robin, but he's writing sort of Lovecraftian adventure stories, sort of Brian Lumley of Aunt Lelettra, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but just before there was Lovecraft. But it's, but if, you know, someone came out and said, oh, look at that. We've just had A. Merritt's dates wrong. They all post-date Lovecraft. No one would blink an eye. They'd say, well, that makes sense. <laughs> The Supermates couldn't stop it. Amazing. It's incredible. The Fire and Water Network couldn't contain it. We didn't come here to fight with monsters. We're not equipped for it. The House of Frankenstein returns in 4D. They meet at the castle and hold debauched gatherings. Four blood-curdling episodes. Four classic horror films. Four supernatural adventures with your favorite superheroes. Four chances to lose your mind with sheer terror. Starring Lon Chaney Jr. When the full moon rises... I turn into a werewolf with only one desire in my mind. To kill. John Carradine. I am Count Dracula, but I'm known to the outside world as Baron Latos. You see before you a man who lived for centuries, kept alive by the blood of innocent people. Julia Adams. Please, what is it you found? I don't know what you'd call it. It sounds incredible, but it appeared to be human. Peter Cushing. This place has been accursed to the evil 
of some who abide here. And at long last, Vincent Price. Nine killed you. Nine shall die and be returned your loss. Coming in September and October to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I can't wait. There isn't time. There isn't time. House of Frankenstein. My work is nearly finished. Go now. Destroy all I have created. Somewhere between Billy Jack and the Wizard of Oz, who fears the devil? An unforgettable odyssey into a strange and exciting land. Adventure in American folklore from the Blue Ridge Mountains of the Carolinas. Wait a minute. Just a minute. My gold brought me here. That's what brought the earth. It's gold. I accept you. Your grandpappy John swore to sing the D5. Your old Nick. By his own name. Look at these new strings. True silk. Five bright, shiny new four-bit pieces with poor Mr. Kennedy's face shining like a new day. Melted and drawed into strings to make music. The stranger can't stand up again. You're a new day in my life. A new way to my world. You're a new So there's a possibility that you will have heard a panel uh, from the first day of the Lovecraft Film Festival. Uh, it was the primer to the Cthulhu Mythos, moderated by Kenneth Height, featuring panelists Dominique Lamsey's, D.B. Switzer, Tim Uren, and Cody Goodfellow. 
Uh, either way, it is Friday night, and uh, we are done. When I say we, it's not just me. I told you Chris was going to be here, and he's just standing here waiting for me to shove the microphone in his face. Chris, what did you think of the first night? Oh, I had a great time. October is now officially started for me. It's the Halloween season. That's right. It is uh, Lovecraft. It's October. I said this earlier at the top of the show, and I said this on Facebook Live, too. It's Without this, man, just October doesn't feel right. And the stars were right tonight. We did the panel, and then we split up. Chris, what did you see? Um, F. Paul Wilson is the guest author here today, um, this year, so they were showing... Um, the film version of his novel, The Keep, which is really hard to see. There has not been a DVD release for this. Um, he got into a few details on that. And what was really cool is he did a uh, riff track, MST3K type commentary, not making fun of the movie, but bringing up points and stuff during the movie. So uh, there'd be stuff where you'd kind of, you know, he'd, he'd make mention of how cheesy some of the lighting effects look and stuff but it was really pretty informative it was a good time and it made that movie seem a lot less long than it appeared to be yeah I um yeah (laughs) that's about all I yeah that's the only reaction I have so uh, I did shorts block 2 now when I first started coming to this saying the shorts blocks were always the thing that I tried to hit every single time and now they just keep there's six blocks this time it's insane we skipped blocks one to do the panel uh blocks two there was a version of dreams of the witch house which was okay there was an adaption or an adaptation excuse me of the transition of juan romero which doesn't get a lot of adaptation you know a lot of times at the lovecraft film festival you see adaptations of uh thing on the doorstep the last statement of randolph carter no yeah, well, you know, the last yeah, statement. Yeah, 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 the testimony. No, whatever. You see the same movies or stories adapted over and over again. Transition of Juan Romero, interesting to see. I don't know much about the story itself. Makes me want to go back and reread it. Uh, it may or may not have been more faithful than the Dreams of the Witch House adaptation, which was not. Um, no Brown Jenkin, except there was a cat, which isn't exactly what Brown Jenkins... Anyway, uh, it was ended by a short called The Sound of the Deep, I believe is what it's called. I don't remember off the top of my head. I will find out and uh, correct myself later in the show. But it was really good. And uh, I'm going to find more details about it. And like I said, I'll talk about it later in the show. Uh, I don't know what's coming up over the next couple of days. I have not looked at the schedule. I feel like this year is probably the year I'm least prepared which is scary because tomorrow is probably the most important thing I've ever done at the Lovecraft Film Festival. <laughs> what are you looking forward to over the next couple of days? Um, slowly going insane. <laughs> no, um, it doesn't really matter. I'm going to branch out a little bit this year because I usually do the feature films. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check out a few more panels. Um, I want to do the... Um, the radio show they're doing, Dark Adventure Radio Theater. Yeah, I want to do that. I don't know. I'm just gonna see. I'm 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 gonna be uh, hope. I'm hopefully gonna be able to get into the theater and watch you do the most important thing you've ever done for the uh, Lovecraft <laughs> Film Festival. Because um, I know you're gonna knock it out of the ballpark, sir. 
says the guy who is just as exhausted as I am. We're stumbling over our words. Of course, I'm referring to Barbara Seal being here tomorrow, Saturday. Uh, I believe it's just a one-day showing for her. Uh, 1.30, I believe, is when Black Sunday is playing. They're suggesting people get here as early as 12.30. I suspect getting here even earlier than that is probably the better idea. There was talk about maybe moving it into a larger theater, which would be... Um, Good idea. A good idea and even more intimidating for me. I'm terrified. I'll be completely honest with you, Chris. I'm terrified. <laughs> um, I've never spoken with or had any interactions with Barbara Steele. I know as somebody who's just hosting a Q&A, it's not about me, you know, interviewing. It's more about kind of controlling the ebb and flow. And, and I, I we'll, we'll see. I'm, I'm nervous. We'll see how it goes. I hope I can record it. We've got that. I'm going to be on a panel about fungus and uh, the mythos. I think that's tomorrow sometime. I, I think it's I think it's Sunday. Huh. Anyway. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's a, a, a fungal thing with Lovecraft that I'm going to be sitting at the end of the table saying, uh, what about Matongo? Attack of the Mushroom <laughs> People. They were fungus. Uh, so the things Chris is talking about, we are doing a presentation. I didn't see it in the program. I, it's on the calendar. It's on the schedule. But I didn't actually see a description of the presentation in there so i hope we get people to show up even if they don't we're gonna have fun chatting about lovecraft and classic cosmic color is what i'm calling it on the schedule it's called lovecraft and living color live color uh whatever it is it's a follow-up to the lovecraft and black and white panel that i did last year here and this isn't going to be a panel it'll be a presentation that i still need to program (laughs) uh that chris and i are going to give and I don't want to ruin it. I don't want to spoil it. But earlier today, Chris is sending me a message from work with an idea for a classic color monster movie that, yeah, on the surface, of course, it's a little Lovecraftian. It's got some Lovecraftian things. But the way he spins it, it's brilliant. And uh, I can't wait to, to launch it on, and, and let it splatter all over the audience. That's what I'm looking forward to. Brilliant or warped? I'm I'm going with warped actually because I thought of this at work and my mind goes strange places at work. <laughs> Brilliant, warped. Where are we, white man? It's pretty much the same thing oh, at this yeah, point. Pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Uh, sleep deprivation will do that to you. I hope to get some more recordings over the weekend. I am going to bring the classic five deck out. Hopefully, I can get at least one person to play it with me. I want Chris, the new one. Chris is raising his hand. That's right. You haven't played the new deck, so no. I'll bring the new cards out. Uh, it's going to be a long day tomorrow, but I'm looking forward to it. And, yeah, I think that's about any final words before we uh, sign off for Friday night. Uh, I think you summed it up. Uh, it's going to be a long one tomorrow, but I'm really looking forward to it uh, right after I get some sleep, I think. <laughs> some doors that should never be opened. One of them is the door to the shuttered room. I wouldn't take her into that old house, mister. Lesson you want her to end up like this. The terror begins on the road to the house with the shuttered room. There's no hope for Susanna if she spends even one night in that house.
Why, um, detect a threat there somewhere? Did you feel it? Feel what? When you opened that door, it was like I was standing in front of a refrigerator. The terror is a touch. A sound. A sense of someone watching. That stains two people with the secret of what lies in the shuttered room and beyond. Please, let me go. I have to see my husband. What's wrong with staying right here and passing the time of day with me? Hey, Chief. That sure is a lovely wife you got there. And you know, I hear tell, she's just as pretty all over. You wouldn't happen to know what your wife's doing right now, would you? Hey, maybe Ethan knows what this guy's wife's doing. Maybe this guy's wife knows what Ethan is doing. Because maybe they're doing the same thing together. Wait a Let me help you. gravity atmosphere, strange thing happens to man's body and mind. Barry Sullivan and Norma Bengel take you into the most fantastic science fiction adventure ever filmed. Emergency! Emergency! Conditions desperate. Little chance of survival. Help us! Mark, look! What have we got? The Galliot! Get me a fix on this right now. Wes, Brad, controls. Planet of the vampires. Harboring a form of life worse than death. Planet of the bloodless. Creatures who take men's bodies, but attack like vampires. I'll tell you this, if there are any intelligent creatures on this planet, they're our enemies. In this outer space world, the living dead try to escape into life. Salas. No, just his body. And I'm just one of many beings on this planet. And we're fighting to survive. It's imperative that our race continue to exist. We arranged for several of you to kill each other so that we could take over your bodies. You are our last chance. No, never. We'll all of us give up our lives to save our own race. Coming to the stage right now, the 
amazing, talented, beautiful Miss Barbara Steele from here. Right here. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for being here. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. And, and I'd like to kick things off by asking, the word is that when you signed on to this film, you were not given a complete screenplay. You were just giving your, giving your scenes. Is that correct? Yes, but this, is, this was very common in Italy because um, it, it, was, it was the same on Eight and a Half and many films that I did, actually. We were just given a sort of a synopsis and then sort of flung pages the night before like confetti. Then they changed their mind at like, you know, 9 a.m. and say, no, no, learn this other dialogue. So we, uh, it's very difficult to get a, a consistent kind of fix on the character. And also, you know, we never shot with sound. We, it was just always a wild track because Italy is so emotional and was so, so noisy. And there's always somebody singing an aria, building a building just outside <laughs> When you first saw the film, then, in its complete form, what were your thoughts? Well, I didn't see the film for several years until after I'd made it. I actually saw it in America. So, um... I didn't, uh, I didn't see it in its sort of sultry Italian version. There are several versions. The wickedest and the most difficult was actually the Japanese. Oh, mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, so. oh I, well, you know, they had to cut a lot of that stuff out. Ah, uh, okay. Do <laughs> you have any questions from the audience? And you turn the hat. A man in the audience asked if Barbara Seale dubbed her own voice in the Italian films. It depends where I was, because I was working so much, and everything was made in 10 days, you know. And uh, sometimes yes, and sometimes no. Every, everything was dubbed in those days. There's, yeah, I can't think of anything where they had direct sound. And it was very, most actors were very, uh, they were there for a moment, and they were gone for the next moment. And that's how it was, unfortunately, because I think the human voice is so profound and in terms of drama and it just uh, is extraordinary. But Black Sunday, in actual fact, is almost a silent movie. It has all the qualities of a silent movie, for me anyway. Um, the voices and the dialogue is definitely secondary to its visual impact. Any other questions? Uh, right here in the front. A woman asked if it was fun playing dual roles in the film Black Sunday. Was it fun playing dual roles? I played dual roles in practically every film, which made me quite schizophrenic later on. <laughs> Until I realized that basically we all have this duality in us, you know. So nobody's walking around a saint and nobody's walking around the devil for the most part. <laughs> Yes, sir. A man asked Barbara Steele to talk about the different versions of Black Sunday and if there's a particular version she prefers. Well, actually, I probably haven't seen all the different versions, I, I, I'm sorry to say. Well, I know that, uh, for example, the music in the American version is by Lex Baxter, and that's a completely different score than in the Italian version. The name of that composer I can't quite remember. I don't remember either, but Les Baxter is probably known for like doing the beach party movies, things like that here in the States. So uh, appropriate for exactly. Black Sunday. Right? <laughs> he did do Double Chore. He did do Double Chore, that's true, that's true. 
any other questions? Yes, sir. Next, she was asked about the aging effects shots in the film and if she had any insight as to how these special effects shots were accomplished. Well, they probably did that with camera lenses to a degree. Huh? And uh, then they probably uh, bleached it out once more for the younger version and then the old age makeup for, you know, more pristine a pristine lens. What was it like working with Mario Bava? Well, Mario Bava was a lot like working with Roger Corman, with whom I... Um, they're both extremely civilized and uh, internalized, very quiet. And in fact, I... Uh, Mario Bava was not like an Italian at all, because uh, he was very... Um, studious and silent and as opposed to Ricardo Freda or Margariti or all the other guys I made those movies with and they had wonderful tantrums and were completely <laughs> explosive and I could respond to that much more because I loved the risen energy of this drama and as I, I, I love that. For me it is very difficult to work with somebody who is almost absent absent because they are so much in their own head. They're coordinating everything with great intelligence and great gifts in their own head. But there is not this energy that is coming out towards the actor. There is not that exchange. At this point, somebody in the audience wanted to ask Barbara Steele about her experiences working on the film Shivers, directed by David Cronenberg. He said that he had heard a story about actress Lynn Lowry in that film, that she was having a hard time getting into some of the more emotional uh, moments in the film, and that she had asked David Cronenberg to really help her out and have him take her into another room and just slap her to get that emotional response out of her. Now, the story goes, according to the man in the audience, is that Barbara Seal found out about this and then asked him to do the same thing to her. Her response was... No. <laughs> It'll be the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any stories from working with Cronenberg on Shivers? Well, that was his first film. I've done everybody's first film. Whether it's Joe Dante or Mario Bava, I don't know. I think I've done like seven first films. I'm like a benediction because everybody went on to become enormously famous. Um, can I say anything about Cronenberg? Well, I remember how he was very young. And um, I was living in Malibu and on a little, in a little shack on the beach. It was a very stormy winter. And I remember him arriving with about 19 bunches of marigolds. And this enormous, and I looked at these phenomenal flowers against this sort of dark, raging sea, and I thought, oh, well, this has got to be love. This is fantastic. I'll work for anyone who brings me you know, 19 bunches of marigolds. And um, working with him was uh, very nice. Of course, he was very uh, uptight and focused on making the film, you know, on a very short schedule. and. Uh, I bumped into him years later and I said hello. He couldn't believe that I'd remembered working with him and I thought, that is extremely odd. <laughs> Next, she was asked about her training as an actress and what she thought about her career if she'd be involved with all of these horror movies. Well, I didn't really think. I actually got a, 
I actually studied painting. I actually went to university and studied painting, and then uh, I got a little contract with the rank. It's so dreary. I got this contract with the rank that got all bought out by century, 20th Century Fox, and um, so they give you all these tutors and things, and they they tell you what weight you're allowed to be. And if you're anything over 121 pounds, and I'm five foot nine, you don't get your salary that week. I mean, it was really quite bizarre. And um, in terms of, uh, I did quite a lot of regional theater when I was in university in England, which I liked a lot, but you had to learn a play a week. And uh, you had to learn another play in the afternoon because you only you had to deliver that. So that you have to be very young to maintain all of that at the same time. It's very it's very British. <laughs> and I really regret that I did not go to something like the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art and do all the classics because I think that would have been a really profound experience, particularly in that era. And um, and why I ended up in horror films. So it's the same for everybody, you know. I did Black Sunday and then everybody sees you under that lens. And if you do a Western, everyone will see you under that lens. And people will project you like that forever. That's who you are and that's who you will be and that's what you will be offered. I'm glad you didn't do Western. Thank you. <laughs> but I can ride a horse. <laughs> Chris McMillan asked a question. He asked about working with Joe Dante on Piranha. Everybody loves Joe Dante. He's very ironic. He has a lot of humor. Um, that's another movie that was made for about a dollar twenty. And remember, <laughs> we had to have an auction for the extras or something to sort of try and keep them there because their salary was so hopeless, like four bucks a day. I can't remember something really dreadful. So we said, oh, we've got this wonderful gramophone, you know. Look, you know, here's a ticket, and whoever wins, you know, blah blah. And that's how we made Piranha. But he was very, he is a very nice man. I made, uh, the last film I made was called um, The Butterfly Room, with this Italian director. And Joe Dante has a walk-on in it. And uh, he hasn't changed a bit. He is generous, eloquent, and charming. She was then asked what her favorite film role was. Well, you see, I, I can't see any of it objectively because you have to think of it, what was your experience while you made the movie, and you never think of the entirety of the movie, you don't even get the script, so you have no idea, really, you're in this kind of board or this cauldron of, like, the unknown, doing these bits and pieces. So it's your whole life in that moment in time that is relevant, you know, your co-stars, the crew, the Italian crews were fantastic. If they liked a scene, they'd applaud. This was just phenomenal. And we were given these great luncheons with these little boxes with like half a bottle of red wine, half a bottle of white wine, <laughs> all this pasta, and then we'd all come back completely socked off to lunch. <laughs> Somebody asked about her experiences working on the revival of the Dark Shadows television series and how she had recreated a character from the original series. Well, I never, I never looked at the, I never saw an episode of the early Dark Shadows. I wasn't living in the States then when that was released. And so, 
But I was very frustrated with that role. And unfortunately, that Dark Shadows went on and sort of four hours before the Iraq war. And it was the first time a war was televised. And America was galvanized by this war. And uh, it completely screwed up Dark Shadows because they didn't know how to, to put it on correctly. And um, I wanted my character to be much less severe and more eccentric, and I thought she should have been more powerful because Ben Cross, who played the vampire, and I thought he was perfect because he has this sort of face like a gargoyle. You could have cut it off Notre Dame or something. You know? <laughs> and I thought he was just amazing, and I thought if they had made my character almost as powerful or as powerful as him, so the engagement of the energy would have been much fiercer, more riveting, but, you know... But that was not the case. So that that was my experience of working with Dark Shadows. Okay. Uh, yes, sir. You shared this thing with some of the greatest actors of all time. I'm wondering which of your co-stars have the biggest impact on you. Sorry? Uh, he asked, uh, which of the co-stars that you've worked with left the biggest impact on you? Co-stars. Mm. Maybe Vincent Price, really. Vincent Price, for his intensity and uh, his intelligence and his focus. And I always thought he would have been a great Shakespearean actor. He had this incredible kind of uh, power and elegance about him and intelligence. So I, and I had a very small part in Pit and the Pendulum, but I really connected with Vincent Price. So I would say Vincent Price. Uh, do we have any other questions? Yes, uh, in the back. Somebody in the back asked Barbara Steele about her experiences working with Boris Karloff on Curse of the Crimson Altar. Well, that was absurd, you know. There I was in the same film with Boris Karloff and as uh, Christopher Lee. They never put any of us together. We were all in separate scenes. We might have been in separate movies. So it was just, so I had no experience of working directly with Boris Karloff other than having lunch with him. I always thought he had an extraordinary presence and face and with some very ancient melancholy with those extraordinary eyes. Yeah. Any thoughts of spending time with Christopher Lee on set on that film? Well, I've, I know Christopher Lee and uh, I liked Christopher Lee. He was, uh, I thought he was a very interesting man. I've been to his apartment in London and uh, he took being Christopher Lee very seriously because he had a little throne. And he invited me for sherry and his wife was there and we go into this beautiful drawing room overlooking these wonderful gardens. And there's Christopher Lee on his little throne. <laughs> Two steps and there he is. Good afternoon, Barbara. <laughs> Then Chris asked her if she had any future projects coming up. No. It's all over. <laughs> You've said that before. Oh, good. <laughs> One more question, maybe? Anything from anybody? 
Yes. The final question came from a woman wanting to know from Barbara Steele how things have changed in the business over the course of her career. How have things changed in the cinema business? Or how, have, yes. how, how has life changed? Uh, Do we have that much time? <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually uh, prefer movies from uh, the past because we are so frenzied now. And I thought that one of the great powers of movies was its silence and its ability to, one could pause in the silence and project and anticipate what possibly could be lurking behind the curtain. But now everything is slammed in everybody's face at 90 miles an hour that you have to go like this, stop, you know. So that's what's changed in looking at movies now. If you go back and look at movies in the, in the 40s, for example, or the early German Expressionist movies, the Nosferatu, the silent movies, the Nosferatu's, you know, the extraordinary visual gifts and imagination. It just is, uh, and why? Because now movies are made by committee. They're made by like, you know, 30 people that haven't read a book. So I want to thank you again for being here at the oh, Lovecraft Film you. Festival and, and doing this Q&A. And uh, there were some people in the audience who had never seen this movie before, so it was their first time and they loved it. Oh, uh, I loved it. So thank you for doing this. I think Gwen is here with something for you. Oh, that is so sweet. The sound you hear is dripping blood. This is the start of Black Sunday. Black Sunday comes but once every hundred years. On that day, the undead demons of hell rise to unleash an orgy of evil on the world. From Nikolaj Gogol's great classic, American International Pictures presents Black Sunday, the most frightening motion picture you have ever seen. She was murdered 500 years ago. There in the barren waste that was her cemetery, they nailed the mask of Satan to her face. Not since Dracula stalked the earth has there been such an unspeakable day and night as Black Sunday. Of horror. The devil is not exactly noted for his sense of humor. A servant of man and the devil. My brother stayed here, didn't he? <laughs> what happened? <laughs> Tell me what happened to him! Dead. A journey into the unknown terrors of the world of black magic.
subconscious mind can play strange, sometimes terrifying tricks. The living bridge between this world and the unknown. Karloff in his last and most diabolic role. Listeners, I apologize. I haven't recorded much at all during the day. I did try to record the Barbara Seal Q&A. I hope it turned out okay, but there's a chance there's a spot where the sound dropped because... (laughs) <laughs> I didn't notice it. Chris, you want to tell me what happened? You got a droopy mic. <laughs> and that's the, your mic just started to um, droop. That's what happens when podcasters get old and tired. You know, you just can't. It just. <laughs> that was a treat. Uh, you sat through the film. I did not because um, I was kind of late because of traffic. But you sat through the movie. What did you think of Black Sunday? Oh, I love the movie. I mean, okay, I was sitting in the very front row, so my view was, you know, a little bit uh, off. Um, I'd rather sit farther back because you can see the whole screen much easier. But, I mean, it's a gorgeous film. It looked great. I'm sure it was a digital version. um, But, you know, I mean, it doesn't matter because, I mean, just watching that on the big screen, you know, I mean... The more I see these old movies on the big screen, the more they come back on the big screen, the more I realize we need more of them on the big screen. Yes, sir. We'll just hit end on that because that's no. Because <laughs> that is that, good night. We're done. No, no, that's true. I mean, it really is. You know, and that's one of the things about this film festival is you get to see some of these things on the big screen like this. Uh, I have not seen any movies on the screen today uh, <laughs> because I've been doing panels and hanging out and that sort of thing. Was that the only movie you saw today? Yep, that was it. That was it. Um, I've been sitting in on panels, going to sit on on one more, just hanging out and, uh, you know, visiting with people. I mean, there's so many people here and there's so it's so cool to hang out with all these people who have a like minded interest. And, uh, you know, instead of talking about the whatever ball sports thingy is on TV, we're talking about (laughs) Cthulhu and Azathoth and all sorts of things in between. And then it's nice. It's real nice. Because you and I don't hang out enough. So there's... No. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. No, it's, it is cool. I mean, to have everybody here, I, I don't know if they still use this term, but to have all the lurkers together uh, is just awesome. And uh, to have the senior setter taken over and turned into the esoteric order of Dagon <laughs> temple, basically, and where all the panels are, which is where I've been pretty much all day outside of the Q&A with Barbara Steele. My experience of that was I was super nervous going into it, but once things started, I felt pretty comfortable, and she was a sweetheart and answered everybody's questions with grace and a smile, and Chris got some great pictures. I, I can't wait to see him uh, on my computer. He showed me one of them. He says he got four, so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing him. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was four. Well, and there's a professional photographer running around yeah. as well who took a bunch of pictures. And so I'm sure his is better than the ones on my phone, so if you get a choice, I, don't, I wouldn't blame you going with his. But I suspect I can get the rights to yours. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that would be pretty easy to arrange. Here, you want them? Take them. <laughs> there you go. There's the rights. So we uh, sat in on a panel about small press publishing. Friend of the show, Sean Hode, was on that. That was fun to kind of, you know, Sean's... <laughs> 
Sean is Sean. Sean Hode is a character. I hope to at some point to shove a microphone in his face while he's here because he's just a mile a minute a trip and just that was a fun panel but what i'm really looking forward to is the presentation we're doing here in a little bit margaret bruntridge is it brunt the woman who did all the weird tales covers the salacious robert e howard heaving bosoms of damsel in distress covers the way i described them made them sound terrible they're not they're 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 gorgeous pieces of art done by this amazing woman and we're going to see a presentation about that Uh, are you familiar much with her um, only the pictures I remember seeing in old magazines and, you know, books about weird tales and all those. And, and her artwork is, I mean, you know, even, even if you don't remember her name, which I don't, you know, Margaret, uh, I don't remember their name right now, but even if you don't remember her name, you know who did it because her style is unique. It's gorgeous to look at it's enticing it brings you into whatever story it's you know describing even if it's one of those illustrations that isn't exactly in the tale that's being told it still makes you want to read it just it's that presentation that she had that makes you go yeah i gotta see what this is about yeah, just do a quick Google image search, man. Just check out her work. It's, it's amazing artwork. I don't know what the presentation's about. I don't know who's doing it, what we're going to learn. Uh, they were setting up videos, so we're going to see a lot of magazine covers. And I'm looking forward to that. Partly because I want to see how the presentation turns out, because we have a presentation tomorrow that I am not prepared for yet. This is going to be a lot of fun. It's uh, Lovecraft. I, I pitched it, like I said, as Lovecraft in cosmic color, um, classic cosmic color. They've got it pitched as Lovecraft just in color, I think. Yeah. I, I don't know what it's called in the, in the panel, but I'm looking forward to that. And I think I did say earlier I'm not prepared. I'm still not prepared. Listeners, this is a journey that you're on with me. Um, it's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Chris has an amazing theory about, I don't want to say what the theory is. I don't want to say, I don't want to give out the punchline, but can we mention the movie that you're going to talk about? What, what, is, what is the movie, Chris? It's the old Steve McQueen, the blob. I'm tying it to Lovecraft in the most ridiculous way possible. Chris shared with me how he would have relaunched Universal's Dark Universe using the Brandon Fraser mummy films. And it's awesome. He sent to me over the series of <laughs> several posts on Facebook Messenger tying the blob into Lovecraft, and it put that to shame. <laughs> it's, it is so cosmically appropriate, and uh, I can't wait to hear how the audience reacts to it. I can't either. Yeah, realize I sent this to him on my lunch break at work because um, where I work it's I've done it for six years it's it's muscle memory I can go off and do whatever so my brain takes these flights of fancy and I'm like now who would appreciate this idea I know and so now it's going to be it's going to be on Monster Kid Radio God help us <laughs> it's going to be fun I'm looking forward to that uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the uh Haunted Palace a little bit and Dunwich Horror and a few other things and I've got a few surprises uh, Chris has another movie that he sent me a link to a trailer for that blew my mind even though I'd seen the movie before I kind of put it all out of my head and then seeing the trailer with all the images all together in one spot um, yeah. yeah so uh, you're just going to have to keep listening to hear what that one is I want to leave people in suspense for that this is a tease so you know, we're talking about Monster Kid Radio. Um, I'm looking at the deck of the Classic Five. Now, this is the new revised deck that I took to Monster Bash. There are questions in here that you've probably heard and maybe even played before. 
but there are some new ones as well. Yeah. So if there's anything in there that we just want to pass, I'm cool with that. There are different styles of questions in here. The core deck, which has a gray circle. If it's red, it's about Hammer films. If it's green, it's about the kaiju. If there's a globe, it's universal specific. And if it's black, it's a deep cut. Real deep in the fandom. So so what do you think? You want to play around with the Classic Five? Oh, you bet. I'm just looking at the first one. It's, it's a black circle. Could be fun. <laughs> well, no, this one actually, what I'm talking about is in the center. So the center, is, is that gray? The lighting out here is kind of funny. So let's take a look at this card if I can pick it up. Oh, you might have done this one before. Favorite Lon Chaney Jr. role? Oh, that one's easy for me. It's always going to be uh, 41's The Wolfman. I mean, it's Lon Chaney. Uh, you know, I mean, he's done he, Grapes of Wrath. He was wonderful in, you know, I mean, he's done some great work, but somehow he took Larry Talbot and made that tortured soul real in that movie. And I mean, he did a great job playing him throughout the Universal Cycle, but The Wolfman, the first one, just... He stole that movie, and he did such a good job. It's the one I'm always going to remember him as. I love the film so much, and I love what he does in that. I feel bad because he was such a capable actor and did so much more, but I am so glad that he poured so much, and I'm going to say even so much of himself, oh, yeah. into the Talbot character. There's a lot there that if you really start to look at it, you can see some... Cheneyism in it. Does that make sense? No, it makes total sense. I agree. Uh, the relationship with his um, stage father, Claude Rains. You know, there's there's yeah, movie father, I guess, not stage. But you know, there's there's a lot there you can read and you can see he's drawing things out from his life and really pouring his heart into that role. I mean, like I said, the sad thing is he was such a good actor and he was never really able to get out there and show everybody. I mean, the Wolfman should have really been a stepping stone for him. It should have gotten him, should have, I think, skyrocketed him. But then he got stuck as the Wolfman, which was great, but then also as the Mummy, which, you know, he doesn't get a chance to do a whole lot. You know, I mean, it, it's 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 kind of sad that that's, his, that that's his high mark, but it's so good to have it out there. Yeah, it's a good way to put it. All right, let's, uh, ooh, I want to grab a black one. I see this black one here. It's a deep cut. Okay. Deep cut. Favorite Rondo Hatton film? Are you familiar with Rondo Hatton's filmography? Oh, uh, not really. It's been a while. Gosh, because, yeah, I'm not familiar enough with his. Um, oh, no, I'm really not because um, we never got those out here. And, you know, trying to find a Rando Hatton uh, movie in Blockbuster in uh, <laughs> Vancouver, Washington is damn nigh impossible. I am sadly, I, I can't answer that question because I just, I don't know enough. There aren't very many. Um, no, his, his film career didn't go as long as it probably could have. He had health issues. He acromegalia, which I always mispronounce, uh, acromegalia, yeah, whatever, um, you know. But uh, The Brute Man, and he did a Sherlock Holmes film, uh, which is really good. Yeah, he was yeah. the creeper. He was actually the creeper in that Sherlock Holmes movie, and yeah. then would appear as a creeper in something else. So. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I'm just not familiar enough. It's, it's, it's too deep of a cut for me. <laughs> <laughs> too deep of a cut. How about a red card? Which okay, is, let's go. All right, this is a hammer card. The Vampire Lovers, Lust for a Vampire, or Twins of Evil. Which do you prefer? 
man. Oh, boy. Um, I'm going to go with Twins of Evil. Um, just, just edging out the vampire lovers. Because vampire lovers has, uh, you know, Ingrid Pitt in it. And she was magnificent in that. But, and Peter Cushing was in it, too. But Peter Cushing was in uh, Twins of Evil. And he got to, he got to play a... You know, I mean, he got to play a not-so-nice person, you know? I mean, he comes around at the end, but, you know, yeah. And the music was interesting in the beginning, um, knowing that the... I, and you will know the person's name. I'm not that much of a soundtrack guy, but knowing that the uh, composer wanted to do a Western makes all the sense in the world when you hear it. And I really appreciated the director's restraint with uh, the twins that played... The, the you know the twins of evil um, because you know they had appeared in Playboy and it could have gone a direction that Hammer kind of went later on after that but it didn't it was rather you know I mean for having you know two women who posed naked in Playboy there wasn't as much nudity as I expected the first time I saw it um, so yeah twins of evil and great score Peter Cushing magnificent as always really entertaining story and uh, yeah everybody gets what's coming to him at the end which is always nice <laughs> there you go hey I, no wrong answers but uh, that's the right answer <laughs> All right, card number four what classic monster movie should never ever be remade oh you know the answer to this one <laughs> they okay never ever should be remade is, is really kind of ultimate but I'm going to say at this point in cinema, cinematic history don't remake Creature from Black Lagoon don't although if you look at uh, The Shape of Water Guillermo del Toro's kind of doing it um, but yeah don't make the creature don't remake the creature from Black Lagoon please don't you're going to CGI the hell out of him and I don't want that what if you turn it into a rock and roll musical stage show and then run it? On, I mean, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> the look on Chris's face. Um, that's already been done, and it, it was uh, did not do well. Um, you mentioned Del Toro's Shape of Water. I love the trailer for that. I can't wait to see it. I get the impression when I watch that trailer that Del Toro's wanted to be involved in the Dark Universe and couldn't make it happen. It's like, fine, I'll make my own. Yeah, I thought so too. Because where did they find the the you know the thing they're experimenting on in the Amazon? It says it right in the trailer. It's like, oh, you're just slapping them in the face, aren't you? And I love you for it, Del Toro. I love you. <laughs> All right, final card. I went through and I found a, a globe card, so it's universal. Oh, okay. Oh boy, uh, I know where you're going to go with this. Favorite George Wagner film? He was a director, and he directed two films with Lon Chaney. Mm-hmm. Man-made monster or the Wolfman? Oh yeah, too easy. Uh, too easy. Man-made monster? No. <laughs> no, that. But man-made monster wasn't bad. It was. It was a pretty good little film. But yeah, you got to go with the Wolfman. I mean, seriously. I'm going to bring this one out. You know, we're, we're, I'm just cheating now. Card six. It's another deep cut. I want to give you another chance to so redeem okay, yourself okay. on the deep cut. You ready? All right. The Blob or Keltiki, the immortal monster? Ooh, that's a nice one because they're both blobs. Um, I got to go Keltiki. Um, really? 
really? Even though we're talking about Blob tomorrow? Yes. Even though we're talking about Blob tomorrow, because I mean, let's be honest, Kaltiki just looks gorgeous. The monster just, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love The Blob. The Blob is a great movie. The Blob is a wonderful movie. Um, but I mean, just something about Kaltiki and the way they did it and, and, and the fact that Guess what? It does divide, which the blob should have done, but of course that would have really ruined the movie because then the town would have been destroyed. Um, you know, and, and uh, you know, it. Uh, Kaltiki just looked better. Um, I like the black and white photography. It's gra- It's shockingly graphic for the time. Um, you know, which didn't bo- doesn't bother me. But you're watching a movie from what 1959, 1960. I, yeah, somewhere in there, and you know, they pull one of the pieces of Kaltiki off this guy's arm and it's like, oh my, that's, that's gnarly. Um, so yeah, just Mario Bava's direction, even though it's, you know, kind of there, sort of up for debate. Um, the effects look really good. Um, you know, just edging, just edging, just edging out the blob. Fair enough. Uh, we're going to cut this off abruptly because we've got a presentation we got to get oh, to. Oh God, let's go. Ages ago, in a long-lost part of the world, the Mayans worshipped a terrifying goddess. To her, men offered their strength and their devotion. Women offered the beauty of their bodies. Al-Tiki, the immortal monster. Today, courageous adventurers, dedicated scientists of both sexes, begin the exploration of recently discovered caverns buried in the very womb of the earth. From space beyond space comes force beyond measurement, energizing this monstrous mass of man-eating protoplasm that devours every living thing it touches. When her mate appears in the sky, the power of Kaltiki will destroy the world. You can believe what you like. Kaltiki's been reborn. Anything on this earth stop Kaltiki, the immortal monster. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the monster vs. monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com 
or visit sdsullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again. And remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. The coffin opens and terror reaches out from beyond the grave. As the twins of evil evoke the power of vampirism and witchcraft. Twins of evil. They use the satanic power of their bodies to turn men and women into their blood slaves. Twins of evil. Rated R. Under 17. Not admitted without care. Alright, so here's the thing. We could have gone down to get coffee. But I'm a podcaster, man. This is this is life. This is my caffeine, kind of, sort of. It is Saturday. You know, it's not even Saturday. I am so tired. I'll be back. I need caffeine. Okay. It is Sunday. Um, what, what time is it? It's like coming up on 7 o'clock. And, uh, wow, we are, we are winding down the festival. But we still have a long night ahead of us. Chris and I do. But... You know, you've heard me and Chris quite a bit. I want to talk to Dominique, who's here as well. Dominique Lamsey's, who friend of the show, been on the show, going to be on the show again because I still have the crash recording from when we went to go see the War of the Worlds. How's the festival treating you? Yeah, pretty good so far. So, thanks a lot. That's it. Okay, we're good. <laughs> so, no. Uh, so, a uh, thing about Dominique. See, I, I consider her a friend. Uh, I trust her opinion. I value her opinion about a lot of things. And she said something on Friday that made me think. Okay, Dominique, she's. Not just as awesome as I thought she was. She's even more awesome because she name dropped Robert E. Howard during the Cthulhu Mythos panel, and I was just like, "Yes!" To tell me about how much you love Robert E. Howard. Okay, well, I'm a big uh, fan of the Solomon Kane stuff. Yeah. Um, it's. it's <laughs> I like Lovecraft, but there's that very big sense of there's the things out there, and the things out there are doing nasty things to you. And that's fine for a little while, but every once in a while, like, I want the the Howard, because Howard is very earthy. It's the people who are here and the things they do. And again, he got into the very nuts and bolts of this is what these things do to a person, which in general is what I like in fiction. And he tended to get a little more visceral, um, because the story that always pops into my head is Old Garfield's Heart. Oh, yeah, right, right? <laughs> so, yeah, and the Solomon Kane stuff. So, yeah, it's just, he's so much more dense. In a lot of ways, he's the opposite of Lovecraft, because Lovecraft is very cosmic and ethereal. And again, so, um, not Solomon Kane. Well, Solomon Kane, too, but uh, Robert E. Howard is, again, very, very earthly, very materialistic, and, but in a different way, I think. I love my Howard. <laughs> uh, I'm a huge fan of Robert E. Howard. Uh, you know the Conan stuff, obviously, but Solomon Kane I like a lot. Um, just uh, what's the woman? Red Not Red Sonia, because that wasn't technically a Howard creation. But there is a uh, there's another woman who's uh, uh, Dark Agnes. I really like Dark Agnes stuff. Um, but no, Robert E. Howard did a lot more than just fantasy. So to hear somebody else talk about how much they appreciate Robert E. Howard horror at a festival that in the past sometimes hasn't necessarily celebrated that as much uh, makes me very, very happy. Uh, Pigeons from Hell. Yep. The Black Stone. The mm-hmm. Black Stone is my hands down favorite. Did you see the Pigeons from Hell uh, thriller episode? Have you seen that? What are your thoughts on it? That one, I didn't know that was a Robert E. Howard when I saw it for the first time. Okay. Um, also, because isn't that one set in Louisiana? I think so. 
Because I think I saw that like right when I came back from college from in New Orleans. <laughs> so for me, it was like, oh my God, that's so totally true. <laughs> With all those crazy people in the swamps and stuff. So it just, yeah, there was, there's this element of what? But this element of absolutely that I just loved about it. It's good stuff. It is good stuff. Now, I also want to talk about uh, an experience that you had yesterday. Uh, you, you told us a couple of times that you cried at the festival. What made you cry and how can we make you cry again? No, just kidding. Well, I, I would like to know about uh, your... Just how did you feel about meeting Barbara Steele? Because that was, that was the moment. Yeah. Um, so I announced this to everybody. And while I appreciate the sympathy that everybody's been giving me because this happened, I totally did it to myself and I knew this was going to happen. Um, I cried in front of Barbara Steele, for those of you who are not here. She... She was a big deal for me. Um, I was 11 years old when the Dark Shadows revival came out. And I wasn't necessarily into horror at that point. That was one of the gateway things that got me into it. But I knew at that point, like, horror was, you know, girls in their underwear running through the forest, breaking a heel and getting eaten. So (laughs) to see her, to see Dr. Hoffman be this intense, strong person who is fighting the evil but having her own inner conflicts that that was important for me it was a big deal and she said during the Q&A which I'm sure you guys will have heard by now that um she didn't feel the character was strong and that was what really got me choked up because I said that to her and I just and then my throat closed up and I started tearing up and I ran away (laughs) and she was really nice about it but I thought she was a sweetheart. I did not go downstairs to talk to her or anything like that because there's just so much to do. What are some of the things that you've done at the festival, Dominic? Um, I was on a couple panels on the first day, um, and I have been attending a lot of readings. Um, there's a lot of really good readers here. And, of course, I went to the initial screening of Black Sunday, and I actually watched half of it again today because they were showing it again because it's Baba. <laughs> um, and, yeah, just hanging out with old friends and making new ones and buying books. This festival is terrible for book buyers. And, you know, it's not always been like this. I, I've said before, you know, I used to come to the saying, I've come to the saying so many times. And over the years, I've seen it kind of grow into a full-on convention with booksellers and all these wonderful things. And, you know, as the industry changes, too, it's becoming easier and easier for people to put books out. And uh, there's just so much. I, I have intentionally not bought any books yet. I know I'm going to. Well, I take that back. I did buy the Joe Pulver thing yesterday. Um, but speaking of books, congratulations to you because you're in the Challenge from Beyond chat book this year, which uh, takes its inspiration, its name from a challenge that uh, Lovecraft, Howard, do you know the other two people? I don't remember. There, there was a total of four, wasn't there? Yeah, there was four people. They basically, one started a story, passed it on to the next one, to the next one, to the next one, and then it got published in Weird Tales. And I guess there was a version for sci-fi authors too, but uh, they've been doing that the past few years here at the festival, and Dominique's in it, and I can't wait to read it. Uh, and, and so congrats on that. Uh, what's coming up writing-wise for you? Because I know we've just talked over lunch or dinner or whatever about writing. What, what's coming up for you? Is there anything people can find? Um, nothing definite yet. Okay. Um, hopefully J-Horror. Knock on wood. Um, but no definite plans beyond that. So, And, of course, we got Chris. How's today gone for you? It's gone really well. Um, got to sit in on the uh, live reading of Rats of the Wall, which was amazing. Oh, oh man. It, you, you didn't see. Oh, it was so good. It really was good. 
Um, and then we got to talk weird horror on the radio. So that was fun, too. Uh, the Tim Uren one-man performance of Rats in the Walls. Yeah. <laughs> when, so the whole thing starts. We're all just kind of hanging out, waiting for the show to start. The lights are still up. And then he comes barreling down the high aisle, starting, just just letting it rip. Right and in character. Just no, yeah, right, character, right in character, no warning, just starts projecting as he's walking down the aisle to the stage and we're all like huh oh it started okay um i think they i think it took everybody there by surprise because it took him a while to get the lights down and everything but yeah he just he just came blasting in just just uh booming voice just just controlling the whole thing you know shutting everybody up right away it's like oh okay we gotta listen it was great yeah, I saw Gwen kind of running up to the projection yeah. booth to say, okay, let's dim the lights now because it's on. It's happening. <laughs> it's happening now. Uh, that He's got that whole thing memorized. I mean, he basically does the story. He reads it. Well, he's not reading it. He's performing the prose on stage, and it's amazing. And he's a great guy. I've had a chance to chat with him a couple of times and uh, just really excited about have, having met him and actually connected with him because he does some great work. Uh, the rest of the day, uh, let's start with Chris. What do you got going on? Um, I'm just going to drift around and pop my head in different places, probably listen to some uh, fungi stories. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I've got, I'm going to just uh, mask in the warm glow that is slowly fading. That is the Lovecraft Film Festival because it's coming to an end, and then we're going to bring the house down at 9 o'clock, I hope. <laughs> Chris and I have a presentation, and that's going to be fun. We'll talk about that here in a second. But what about you, Dominique? I know you've got a reading. Is that pretty much it? Actually, yeah. I might pop into one of the shorts blocks, but yeah, just, do I need to buy that? Do I need to buy that? <laughs> yes. Yes, you, you probably do. Whether you should. Yeah. yeah. So we're doing a, a Lovecraft in cosmic color, classic cinema in color uh, presentation. We've talked about it a few times already in the recording, but that's happening that starts at that is sharp at nine, nine or o'clock. nine yeah. o'clock, and then know, yeah, yeah. Uh, but we're not bringing the house down. We're not closing it. Dominique's actually <laughs> going to be the very last thing her reading. So technically, the reading goes like twenty minutes after. Oh really? Yeah. So there's four of us. So so leave the house up. So technically, Dominique's shutting down the show. How do you feel about that? I, <laughs> if I'm coherent by then, it'll be great. <laughs> You know, if we get done with our presentation early, I doubt we will. But on the off chance that we do, we'll, we'll pop our head in. But uh, this, uh, it's the festival, man. Like Chris said, there's this warm glow. You know, I, I feel the tentacles around me and I don't want them to let go. Although, I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just how it is. But I thought it was a good way to kick off October for me. This is the first October weekend. Um, how long have you been coming to the show, Dominic? Five years now, I want to say. I think 2012 is my first one. You, Chris? Oh man, I don't remember. <laughs> it's it's been well over a decade. Um, I've been here. Oh man, um, I can't remember the first year I was here. I do remember being here when uh, Bernie Wrightson was here. Um, I don't remember what year that was, and I think I was here a couple of years before that as well. So it's been a while. I mean, I think I've missed a couple, but that's it from. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> it's been it's been a while. I barely remember the first one. I know they didn't have the newspaper programs; they were just regular printouts. About HPL 
filmfestival.com website looked completely different back then. Uh, it was just the theater. There was no EOD, no panels, no talks, nothing. It was just movies. Well, wasn't the first one at the Clinton Street? Yeah, that one I didn't go to. Um, I the first that's okay. The first one that I was at, I think they showed the fog on the main screen, and then there were a couple of shorts blocks. But yeah, it's it's definitely grown over the years. I'm curious to see what's going to happen next. I, typically, they announce what's when the next one is at the end of the day, right? It's on the program. It's on the program. It's, it's yes, I noticed that. It's uh, one of us will get it out. Uh, whoops, down there. Uh, October 5th through 7th of 2018. Mark your calendars. So what, what kind of time do we have left here? I got a few minutes. Um, you're kind of shivering, though. Are you too cold to keep going, or we need to wrap this up? No, because I've been doing this all weekend. Oh, okay, because uh, <laughs> I know I know we've already done it with Chris, and I know we've done it with you over the phone before, but I got the Classic 5 cards. Okay. I would love to play around in the Classic 5 with Dominique, and well, why not, with Chris, too. Oh, okay. I'm, yeah. I'm joining sure, in. Sure, you can talk. Oh, are, are you, you can sure? Talk. Are you sure? It's okay. <laughs> I don't want to step on toes. I mean, let, let's be clear. This is about me, but you are allowed to talk. Okay. Well, you, <laughs> you're first. <laughs> wow. Okay. All right. Well, I already know how the answer is going to go for this first card. So the classic five. I explained it to Chris. Uh, there are new new cards with some new questions, some old questions. There are five styles of cards. If there's a gray circle in the middle of the card, it's a, a regular question. If it's green, it's about kaiju. If it's red, about hammer. If there's a globe, it's universal. And if it's black, like the one in my hand right now, it is what we call a deep cut. Ooh, okay. All right. All right. Well, I know what's going to happen here. I know. I know right off the bat what's going to happen here. Dominique, which do you prefer? And for Chris, too. Planet of the Apes or Planet of the Vampires? Planet of the Vampires, 100%. Oh, got to go with vampires. Yeah. Really? See, I'm going to go apes. Can we still be friends? Well, sure. Just because you're wrong doesn't mean we're not friends. No, no, no. <laughs> he, he acknowledges the value in Bava, so it is okay. Oh, no, no, no. And and don't get me wrong. I am not dissing Planet of the Apes. It's, you know, I mean, that's that's a great sci-fi series, you know. Um, I'm talking about the early ones. Um, let's forget Tim Burton's version. Um, Which is true of, like, everything. Yeah, really? but anyway, but, but I just, yeah. Okay, Dark Shadows traumatized me, okay? Ooh, you sat through that one? Yeah. You are a brave soul. I'm a glutton for punishment is what I am. <laughs> but no, I, I am not dissing uh, Planet of the Apes. I think it's a wonderful series, but yeah, it's Bava, and it looks so good. And if you watch it and don't think, hey, Ridley Scott saw this one, you're, you're really not watching. All right, so card number two, it is a globe, so it's a universal card. And Chris already saw this the other day, but I'm going to play it anyway. Uh, Dr. Septimus Pretorius or Dr. Gustav Niemann? I, might, um, I think I'm about to get my card taken away because I only know who one of those is. Okay, so you know Pretorius. Yeah. Niemann is the character that Karloff came back to play in House of Frankenstein. Okay. <clears throat> Oh, man, I'm going to get my card taken away over this one because I'm actually not that much of a Frankenstein fan. Okay. Um, I like Dr. Pretorius um, because Bride was... It had things about it that I liked. Um, and he was kind of one of them. He doesn't stand out for me as, like, a big baddie, but I can see why other people like him. On the other hand, it's Boris. 
But I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with Pretorius. I'm gonna go with Pretorius. Yeah, I love Boris, but gotta go Pretorius. Ooh, I even rhymed. Yeah, nice. <laughs> and you weren't even in a rap group in the '90s in Montana. <laughs> All right, card three. It's oh, it's green. It's a kaiju card. So, uh, what is your favorite kaiju era of films? The Showa era, the Heisei era, or the Millennium era? She's first. But she was first last. Okay, fine. Okay. Um, oh, man. that's That one's a little deep for me. I'm going to say whatever era had Frankenstein Conquers the World. That was that was the show, wasn't it? Okay, that one. But but you don't like Frankenstein. But that movie isn't Frankenstein, so. <laughs> <laughs> and it has a kid eating Hitler's irradiated heart. I don't understand your question. <laughs> yeah, that now invalidates that. Uh, I'm, I'm going with show era, too, because those are the ones I saw first, you know, when I was a kid. And, I mean, I just love them. They're a lot of fun. That's probably my favorite era, too. Unless you're talking the Gamera stuff, then I'd go Heisei, because the 90s Gamera films are amazing. So, okay, card number four. It's a red card, so it's a hammer card. It's going to make Dominique happy. Yeah. Not counting the original... What is your favorite Hammer Dracula film? Brides. Because, again, I'm going to get my membership card taken away. That's really kind of the only one I like. Actually, no, I like horror. But, yeah, those two. Because I like Christopher Lee, but the rest of them was just chicks' boobs. And that doesn't work for me. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. Although there are some who argue that Brides of Dracula is not technically a Dracula film. I say it's in the title. It counts. But there are, there are those, Steve Sullivan, who say that it's not a Dracula Steve Sullivan film. So I don't know what Steve Sullivan has. Yeah, I don't know. I like Brides, too. I think it's underrated and it's great. So, Oh, I'll, don't worry. I'm probably right there. I'm going to get my card taken away, too, because I have to go with uh, Dracula 1972. Cause, yeah! Because, I mean, you got Dracula, you got Caroline Monroe, you know. You have Christopher Lee hating every second of everything he's doing the entire time, and it's clear. (laughs) Yeah, but he still pulls it off real well. And I don't know, it's just so stupid, but so much fun. You know, I mean, it really is. Okay, spoiler alert. That was the one with the Hawthorne bush at the end, right? That's no. Satanic Rites. That's the next one. Okay, I'm saying, no, no, it's not, because Satanic Rites ended with the fire. No, Satanic Rites with Hawthorne. Um, I don't. Oh, we're just having to go back and rewatch them again. Yeah. But no, no, Satanic ends with Hawthorne, and I always thought that was kind of a lackluster end. Like, of all the things he could have done to finally kill Dracula, and what's the final film? Hawthorne bush? Really? <laughs> That killed my soul because you can see Christopher Lee hating his life during that scene. You can see it. <laughs> and I was sad. I do love Dracula 80, 1972. And I love, I love Satanic Rites. I have an issue with the end of Satanic Rites of Dracula or Dracula's Brides or whatever you want to call it. So Dracula, it doesn't matter. I enjoy the heck out of them because I love the 70s-ness of them. And you get Peter Cushing in the 70s fighting vampires. So I'm all in. So, Well, Satanic Rites, I really liked the caper of Satanic Rites. Because yeah. Dracula's like, okay, I'm done. I'm like, oh my god, that's genius. <laughs> yep. Ooh. You know, I didn't even think of trying to add in the seven uh, brothers meet Dracula. That, right. no, I can I change my, uh, yeah, no, because, yeah, that one. Kung Fu and Vampires. Yeah. 
And Peter Cushing. And Peter Cushing. <laughs> All right. Final card. Ah, okay. Um, well, this is a regular card. I, I hope it's not too stumping. Uh, the alligator... I'm not going to even edit that out. <laughs> the alligator people or the slime people? I... I actually think I go with the slime people because I like the costumes better. Wow, okay. All right. It, it, it has a very Night of the Living Dead feel. This is true. I'm going to go with the alligator people because, I mean, there's a point where the, the, the costume's really stupid, but, I mean, come on, Lon Chaney Jr. with a hook hand. <laughs> I, I got to go with that. I want an action figure of an alligator person so oh. bad. <laughs> But I and and I think alligator people actually have some really interesting things going on when it comes to uh, the woman's story and the mental fugue break she has, and I think that's really interesting. Spoiler, uh, but there's some really cool things happening there. But I think Slime People is an inadvertent apocalypse film that it it doesn't really have any right to claim that, but it becomes that. And yeah, I want Slime People action figures too because that's you know I'm a big dork. (laughs) <laughs> At what point did we stop using hooks for hands and did we go to eye patches? That's a good point. Because I think I like the hook for the hand better. But now we just do eye patches. I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. Um, I like a combination of them. That, that's always cool. Because you, can, you, you, because you can always go, did he go to scratch his eye and use the wrong hand? <laughs> On that note, I'm going to put the cards away. Uh, I'm going to shut this down, and I'm going to hustle over to get involved in this fun guy panel that I'm only on because I'm obviously a fun guy. Uh, uh, I'm going to use that. I'm going to... In my house, we have the pun pig, so when you make a pun like that, you have to put a dollar in the pig. (laughs) We should have a pun pig here. We really should. I'm not normally a punster, but that one one was bad. in the greatest battle of all time. As the seven brothers and their one sister meet Dracula. Drink the blood of the virgins and turn them into zombies. You haven't seen Kung Fu until you've seen the seven brothers and their one sister in action against Dracula.
the 10,000-year-old monster disintegrate before your eyes as the seven brothers and their one sister meet Dracula. Mark your calendars and plan to attend PIY 2017. PIY is the Podcast It Yourself workshop, and it's happening in Phoenix, Arizona, October 28, 2017. This interactive workshop is being held for people who want to start a podcast or want to learn more about podcasting from experienced and respected podcasters. Learn about software, hardware, accessories, best practices, and more. And of course, we've got prize drawings to make podcasters weak in the knees. The workshop coincides with the long-awaited release of Podcasting for Dummies 3rd Edition. Authors T. Morris and Chuck Tomasi will be at DIY to answer questions and sign books. Oh, and it also happens to be T's birthday, so come help him celebrate after the workshop is done. You do not want to miss this event. Spaces are limited. Go to podcastingfordummies.com and sign up for PIY 2017. It doesn't get any simpler than that. Podcastingfordummies.com and PIY 2017. Go. Now. Here are the seven wonders of the world rolled into one fantastic adventure. Frankenstein, born again to rule in terror, a monster unleashed to conquer all who stand in his destructive path. Frankenstein conquers the world. Spreading panic as millions flee his vengeance. Frankenstein towering over cities, defying the force of armies, the might of navies, and the fury of jets. Frankenstein, a name never equaled in the annals of terror. Frankenstein conquers the world. Stars Nick Adams as the American scientist versus Frankenstein, incarnate. With the strength of a thousand men, a phenomenon such as never seen before. See Frankenstein Conquers the World, astounding on the giant screen, in color scope from American International Pictures. I've been wanting to have this guy on Monster Kid Radio for a while. We're Facebook friends, and, you know, we kind of crossed paths a little bit at previous HPL FFs, and uh, you know, just never really had a chance to sit down to talk to Oren Gray. How you doing, man? Um, I'm doing pretty good. It's been a, a long festival, so I'm a little fried. So apologies in advance about that. But yeah, you'll 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 get what you get of me. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's Sunday night. It's it's seven o'clock. I mean, it's so kind of blah right now that the pants the panel we were going to do is not happening because uh, people are going to see movies, and that's fine. It gives us a chance to chat, and I actually get to have some FaceTime with Warren, which hasn't really happened. Uh, so I'm glad this is happening. Warren used to write for uh, an online magazine that has folded, but back. Then he was doing some vintage classic monster movie reviews, and they've been collected in a book called Monsters from the Vault. You want to tell us a little bit about that? I've been friends with Sylvia for a long time, Sylvia Moreno-Garcia, and she used to run Innsmouth Free Press. And when she was doing it as an online magazine, she wanted some nonfiction stuff, and I volunteered to do this vintage um, horror movie column. And so I did it for five years, and we had like 80 movies worth at that point. And so we just uh, we were like, well, what if – she came to me and said, well, what if we put it all in a book? And I was like, that would be rad. Um, so we put them all in a book in chronological order. Runs from uh, 1932 to 1976. So the first movie is um, Doctor X, and I believe the last one is Food of the Gods in the book. Um, and it you know it runs the gamut of everything in between. Um, but for the most part, I tried to eschew like the really well known stuff. So like, there's no you know no, Dracula's not in there, Frankenstein's not in there, like not the originals anyway. I tried to do some of the more obscure movies and things people maybe maybe hadn't heard of or maybe hadn't seen, both because I felt like that 
those movies have been talked about a lot. I wanted something that gets talked about a lot, but also because it gave me an excuse to go see movies I hadn't already seen. So, like, I tracked out a bunch of movies for it that I'm really in love with, but before I saw it, I hadn't seen. So, like, I got to see the Monolith Monsters for the first time. I got to see Keltiki for the first time. I got to see uh, Island of Terror for the first time. Yeah, um, and so, you know, these these were, like, as I discovered some of my favorite uh, some of my favorite movies from, from this project, so... Um, it's a lot of fun, and then the book's uh, just a sort of a little affordable paperback. But it's um, it's a quick we it's a quick read. You could probably read it in like a day. Um, but it's just uh, it's mostly for like referencing. So like, if a movie comes on T- TCM or something, you want to hear what I thought about it. You can like flip the book up and be like, oh yeah, man, Orin thought this thing was cool or whatever, because you know you really care about that. <laughs> See, this is why I wanted to have him on the show. The guy loves his classic monster movies, and you know that's his thing. I mean, you've got that monstrous influence in a lot of things that you do. Uh, you co-edited an anthology <laughs> that happened because you had a conversation with somebody who loved a particular movie as much as you did. What's that movie, man? Matango or Matango or however the hell you pronounce it. Um, it's uh, So the, the panel that we're not doing and doing this instead was supposed to be a panel about fungus, uh, weird fungal stories, which is what our anthology was about. But I mean, you know, weird fungal stories obviously go back to like William Hope Hodgson, but Matango is like my sort of great love as far as fungal uh, fungal stories go because it's it's Toho doing William Pope Hodgson, which is just the most bizarre thing that I can reasonably conceive of. And what makes it better is it's, it's like it's not just Toho doing William Pope Hodgson because that would be weird enough, but it's Ishiro Hondo, Honda rather doing doing William Pope Hodgson right in the middle of the early Godzilla movies. So like it's literally like Godzilla versus King Kong was sixty two and then Matango sixty three. So like it was like Godzilla versus King Kong Matango just back to back. You know that's such a bizarre thing to choose to do at that point in in history. That and 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 Matango's amazing. It's this it's this trippy psychedelic beautiful thing full of rubber rubber suit like mushroom monsters which are so good you can't see me but i have a pin of one literally on my lapel right now that's how much i love them that's yep yep i mean they're they're some of the best monsters i've ever seen is these like really amazing rubber uh mushroom people but it's actually a creepy movie too like it's not just goofy and fun it's it's creepy and legitimately weird like capital w weird um and it's yeah it's one of my favorite movies i love it to death so the last shot where the guy's just looking out the window and watching the city just it's it's chilling but then you also have that goofy song at the beginning of the movie and it's just there's so much to love about the film we talked about it on monster kid radio proper years ago with my friend tom beagler and uh man i need to see it again i did not watch it uh, i wanted to before the panel that didn't happen but i did listen to a reading of the william hope hobson story uh a voice in the night is that is that right voice in the night. which I can see where Toho took some inspiration. I can definitely see where Toho went. Ah, okay, we're going to go this way. Uh, but just fascinating stuff. And Matango, <laughs> I just can't help but laugh because it is kind of goofy, but it's still just awesome. I mean, the monster design is great. It's, it's something I actually I actually touch upon a lot, and I think that a, a lot of times um, uh, like Japanese movie producers and, and um, mangaka, um, manga, manga artists do a better job of in some ways than a lot of um a lot of american counterparts is that the line especially when you're dealing with the weird and not just like straight horror um you know when you're when you're dealing with the weird the line between goofy and genuinely unsettling is not just thin it's wavy and nebulous and porous and so like things can be both at once so like the 
the mushroom things. They're really adorable and cute and also creepy, though, because then they make this noise that's both, like, both funny and strange. And so it's, like, it's kind of genuinely unsettling, but also kind of funny. And it's a really weird balance to walk that I think, I think most people are scared to even try to walk because... I think most people who write horror, you want, you want horror to be taken seriously. You don't want people to laugh at your horror, but but you're walking such a goofy line anyway that being afraid to be goofy, it, it hamstrings you. Um, and a lot of these people weren't afraid to be goofy, obviously. I mean, you know, it's like, no, we are big rubber mushroom people. We're not afraid to be goofy. This is, we're going to go with this. We're going to all in to the hill. <laughs> it's clear that your love of classic monsters kind of influences a lot of what you do. Now, you have a collection that I saw on the table somewhere, Painted Monsters. Do I got the title right? Yeah, yeah. it's uh, Painted Monsters and Other Strange Beasts. It's from Word Horde. Um, it's actually my second collection, and it's um, it's very heavily like movie influenced, both classic and and contemporary. Like movie influences find their way into my stories just a ton. And once I figured out that people would let me let them in, like people would put up with my self indulgent filtering in of movies, I started doing it more and more. So it's become kind of my shtick at this point because I love it. Um, and uh, in Painted Monsters, I just went. So the stories go in chronological order of what what era of movie they're inspired by. So I start with like the silent films. Um, there's one that's that's heavily inspired by like Murnau's Faust uh, and Nosferatu, and then I run up through. There's like you know there's one that's a Jallo uh, story. There's one that's um it's like a found footage ghost movie that's also kind of a kaiju story. There's um you know and just all these different eras of horror film and then the title story which is a novelette that closes the book out is kind of all of that crammed into one story because it's a it's a story about a, a guy who's a third generation horror movie producer he's basically like if roger corman had a grant a grandson that was living right now um and you know it, it's him getting into trouble because of some stuff his grandfather did and getting into all this so there's like this this layered strata of movies going back to the beginning of horror cinema all the way up to this very sort of modern ending that it has and it's just all crammed into one novelette which i'm really proud of i think it's kind of the most me thing i've ever written maybe so it's a very movie very movie influenced book very cool well uh, long-time listeners, so we've done it a couple of times in this recording. We have a game that we play on the show called The Classic Five. I've got a deck of cards here. Uh, each one of these cards has to do with classic monster movies, uh, classic sci-fi, classic fantasy, that sort of thing. It's not trivia. It's more of a, what do you prefer, this or that? Uh, what movie do you like better? That sort of thing. Just kind of let people know a little bit more about just for some conversation. Uh, we've got five different categories here, and I'm going to say it for you because you've never heard it before, but uh, if there's a, a gray circle in the middle, it's a basic card. If it's red, it's hammer. If it's green, it's kaiju. If there's a globe, it's about Universal specifically. And if it's black, it's a deep cut. So <laughs> uh, first card right off the top. Uh, do you prefer Tarantula or Them? Them, absolutely. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, Tarantula's got its many good qualities, but Them them is definitely the superior, the superior product there. But doesn't have John Agar, though. <laughs> that that's a strike in its favor i mean right i am i wrong about this um what it what it what it doesn't have is the uh the great like mute like melty mutant uh, makeup effects that tarantula had which were pretty fantastic it did not have clint eastwood you're right no but uh it does have the little girl wandering through the desert and it has the the great awful scene of the ants eating like a rib cage that's really gory for a movie from the 50s so yeah definitely them that's yeah, there's no wrong answers here. <coughs> well, we did this with Chris the other night. Uh, so this is a hammer card. The Vampire Lovers, Lust for a Vampire, or Twins of Evil? So 
I'm going to go with the Vampire Lovers. Vampire Lovers is one of my favorite Hammer films, and Hammer films are one of my favorite types of films, full stop, period. But uh, the Vampire Lovers is one of my favorites. Um, to be fair, it was the first of those three that I saw, so I've got a sort of a special affection for it for that reason. But also, the opening like chunk of the Vampire Lovers, where it's like it feels like it's a last time on the Vampire Lovers, <laughs> where it's like recapping some movie that never existed is one of my favorite things like it's it's so gothic and it's so strange that we're like it feels like a sequel to a movie that never happened and i really love that like i love that intro that intro is one of my favorite bits in a hammer film so i'm gonna go with that one see it kills me that i haven't really connected with warren too much over the years because he's like i love hammer i love this i'm like man we sit here and chat all night all right so uh, this is a universal card card number three dracula's daughter or the son of dracula Oh man, um, Dracula's daughter. I mean, the, again, sometimes these feel like they have an obvious answer. Like to me, Dracula's daughter is the superior film, absolutely, of those two. But I do love a lot of things about Son of Dracula, not least of which the the shot of the like shadow of the bat and the morgue window, which I've used as my like Facebook not not profile photo, but the little cover photo thing on Facebook. I've used that as, as that before. Um, you know, I love the. Uh, the you know the Dracula spelled backward name that no one catches because they're illiterate. I gather I don't know, um, but yeah, I mean Dracula's Daughter is definitely the more both both the better film and also the more sort of odd and subversive for that era film um, of the two of them. So I, I would go with that one at the end of the day. It takes more chances. It's definitely more subversive and, and has some beautiful photography. I mean, but I love Lon Chaney, so I, I'm always torn. So I'm not playing it, though you, you are, so I get off on that one. All right, so uh, card number four. What classic monster movie should never, ever be remade? Oh, good God. Um, man, so, like, I am the rare person who's of the opinion that almost any movie can survive a remake so long as the person who is remaking it makes it a new thing. Like... Because the, the worst thing you can do to remake is just make the movie again. Like, I mean, if it already exists, there's no reason to remake it. So you have to do something new with it. Because, I, mean, I mean, you know, the, the Thing from Another World is a nearly perfect film, but so is The Thing. There's very different films. So um, it's hard to say one that can never, should never be remade. But honestly, uh, the one that jumped to mind was um, The Monolith Monsters, just because the, the effect in that would only get worse if it got better if the effect in that were, were made now and were more elaborate, it wouldn't be as good because there's something mystifying about how they do that effect in that movie. And so anything you improve with it, you will lose that weird mystification quality. And beyond that, there's not much to it. So um, lots of people expositing fake science in the desert is, I mean, most of the rest of it. So without the monolith monsters themselves, you don't have much left. So... This is true. Monolith Monsters is just a classic. I mean, it's one of my favorites as well. I was kind of going through the cards a little bit because I apparently the cards I did with Chris the other night were actually on top, and I wanted to get something new. So, uh, card number five, final card. What Boris Karloff role could or should have been played by Bela Lugosi? Oh man, um, let me let me rack my brain a little bit. I, I do really love Boris Karloff, um, and he's amazing, and he's. So while I'm thinking, I'm gonna I'm gonna delay here by telling a story. So like, um, for a long time, I'd only ever seen Boris Karloff be like Frankenstein's monster or uh, the the butler in the Old Dark House or Imhotep uh, in the Mummy, even. And I had I'd seen these and, and they're 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 impressive performances, but I I didn't understand the range that he actually had until I saw the Body Snatcher, 
the, the Val Luton body snatcher where he is just like he floored me in that and I was like okay no I get, the, I get what the fuss is about now like I really understand why this guy's such a big deal now um man I'm trying to think of Boris Karloff role that should have been played by Bela Lugosi um Bela Lugosi would have been pretty good in the role that Boris Karloff played in the ghoul um I can't remember the name of the character Ooh. um it would have been a very different movie if that had happened, but I think it could have uh, could have been something pretty special. So maybe maybe I'll go with that if for lack of anything better jumping to mind. So I like The Ghoul quite a bit. It's it's a solid Karloff film with all sorts of pseudo Egyptology stuff going on. It's it's good and creepy. And there was a Blu-ray that came out a couple of years ago of it, so it looks gorgeous. Get your hands on it. I haven't seen it yet. I haven't oh, seen the Blu-ray yet, but uh, it's also like we were talking the other night. There's like there's not many movies that are in a Thessinger's end, so. Anytime he does show up, you have to you have to cling to it tightly because he's a treasure, and you need to you know we need as much Ernest Thesiger as we can get. That's my deep cut Ernest Thesiger movie. It was every, everyone's like Bride of Frankenstein, and then a few people are like Old Dark House. I'm like the only other one I can usually think of is the Ghoul. So the guy was underrated, and I, I wish he did make more monster movies. I think you're absolutely right. <laughs> uh, when the Dark Universe sizzle reel came out, when Universal was like, "Oh, we're gonna make the new movies," and they put that that compilation video out and it ends with uh, with Dr. Pretorius. I got really excited, but then I got really scared that that meant that they might be bringing in their own version of Pretorius and I did not want to see that. That's true. Um, Ian McKellen. Ian McKellen could totally play Dr. Yeah, Pretorius yeah. because Ian McKellen is basically just Ernest Thesiger reborn. Like he's so, like when, when he's allowed to be like a little bit fey and a little bit, you know, a little bit biting, which he doesn't always get. A lot of times he has to play, you know, he's, he's asked to play like more serious. Like he plays, he's, he's playing Gandalf or somebody, you know, but when he's allowed to be a little bit, you know, a little bit acerbic, uh, then there's definitely some Ernest Thessinger there. Um, so I think he could do, I think he could do Pretorius. I don't think many other people could without changing the character drastically, which might also be okay. But, um, but yeah, if you wanted to stick to the original character, I think Ian McKellen's about the only person around who could do it. So, Speaking of, of him, what did you think of Gods and Monsters, the film, that the, the biopic that liked, he did? I liked it a lot. I saw it. Uh, it's been a long time, so I'd have to watch it again to like really like, because I saw it back when I was still working in a video store, so I'd have been in college. I, I thought it was, I, Bill Condon's a good filmmaker, doesn't always make good films, but um, you know, that's a, that's a distinction that we run into a lot. Um, but yeah, I, I enjoyed it uh, back then anyway, so you know, I'm kind of dancing around it and, you know, I've never had you on the show, so I'm sorry. I'm kind of dancing over all around myself here. Um, what do you think of what's happening with universal and the dark universe? I mean, you're a fan of the classics. Oh, I've got a whole spiel. This will be good. Okay. Um, hands with the mic. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so the, the new mummy movie came out, right? The, the Tom Cruise mummy movie. And it's not a very good movie. Um, but it's not, it's not a very bad movie either. It's just a kind of bad movie. But the problem with it isn't that it's a bad movie. It, it, the problem with it is that any studio could have made that movie. Sony could have made that movie. The, the problem with what Universal's doing is not that they're doing it. Like, it's not that they're making an action movie. It's not that they're putting Tom Cruise in it. It's not even that they're making it present day. The problem is that they don't know what the value of their IP is. They don't own mummies. They don't own Dracula. They don't own Frankenstein. The value of their IPs are the original movies, which means that if you're going to do something new, you have to tie it back to the original movies in some significant way, or else you're not using the value of your IP. You know, again, Sony could have made that mummy movie because there's nothing in it. I mean, besides like, you know, you get a glimpse of a Gilman hand or whatever, but beyond that, there's nothing in the core heart of the movie that Universal owns. And, and that's where that's where the strength of their of their intellectual property is and that's where the strength of their shared universe would be is in the stuff that they actually own because otherwise it's just going to be undistinguished it won't look 
it won't feel like a Universal movie. It'll just feel like a mummy movie that happened to have been made by Universal. And so, um, good or bad, until they until they tap into that that thing that is what the value of their property is. Even to make a really good movie, it still won't be it won't be a movie that only Universal could have made. And that's where they need to go. And if they're going to make something that has any value for them, I think. So are we talking then maybe they are making a sequel to a movie they made 80 years ago and then trying to tie it in that way? Or I feel like there's a lot of different ways you could go that would, as long as you did it, I mean, like even the Brendan Fraser mummy, right? Which I like, but a lot of people don't, but whether you like it or not, it's irrelevant. It uses stuff from the original movies. Like there's, there's no other studio could have made it because it's basically the plot and characters from the second mummy, second universal mummy movie remade like turned into an Indiana Jones film. But I mean, you know, it's, it's got elements from the original films. And so you could do it that way where you just pull in some characters or some names or some elements. You could do it where it was period set. You could do it where it was, you know, where the universal movies were a real thing that happened all this time ago. And now in the present day, we're having the reverberations of them. People rediscover it, whatever, but you have to, you have to have it. You could, you could, you, you could pull aesthetics from it. You could pull almost anything from it as long as you, as long as you make it something that no one else could make because they, because you own it and they don't. Because I mean, you know, what's, what's the value of Marvel shared universe? I mean, the movies make a whole bunch of money, but Marvel owns all that. Like the value of it is that they own all those characters. They own all that stuff. They can merchandise all that stuff. It's just theirs. No one else can have it. And Universal has that and aren't using it. Yeah, they may, they may still be bad, even, if they did that. They may still make terrible movies, but at least they'd be making movies that only they could make. <laughs> I hadn't considered it in that way, but the way you put that, I mean, that makes perfect sense. That that does fit. I mean, if it did not feel like a strictly universal film, and I think, yeah, I'm going to use that. I'm going to steal that, okay? I'm going to use that. I'll, I'll cite you. It's like, Orrin Gray said, and then this... <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, I don't, I'm sure I'm not the only person who's thought of it, but you know, it's it's when you watch the trailer for the Mummy movie, it could have been a mission. And I always joked that you know it was. It could have been the the fifth or sixth or whatever Mission Impossible mummy movie, Impossible. right? Yeah, just like oh yeah, we ran into a mummy in this one. You know, I mean, some other studio could have made it, and that's the problem. I mean, fundamentally, that's that's the the rub. Also, the other problem is that Universal basically owns two really really big money franchises, right? They own, they own the Universal Monsters and they own the Fast and the Furious. So obviously they should uh, cross over in some way, preferably with like wacky race cars, like the old uh, wacky racers or like those monster hot rods or something. Yeah, that they should do that. That's what they really ought to do. Um, that would make all the money, I'm pretty sure. So Universal, uh, give me a call. I'm, I'm available to consult for a modest fee. We're sitting here in the classroom uh, at the uh, Esoteric Order of Dagon uh, building, and while the panel didn't happen, we're still using the room for the panel. We, we have a couple of people listening. Dominique and Chris, you've both heard. Chris is waving, and Dominique's dying in her chair in laughter. I, I would love to see this. I want to see monsters and race cars going. I want like a I want to cross it with like a Cannibal Run style kind of race. I want to see that. I'm I'm actually genuinely not kidding. I would pay all the money for that. Like I would I would go see every one of them no matter how god awful they got. Um so, you know, I just yeah, the universe could just like pull money just straight out of my wallet with a siphon. Um and it would just I I it would be terrible the whole time. I'd be like this is this is garbage. I love it. Um but yeah, you know, it's it's in I'm 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 joking, but only about like half, maybe maybe, maybe like a quarter joke. I don't know. 
Well, wasn't there rumors that The Rock was going to play the Wolfman? Because, I mean, there's your character right there. It's true, right? And that there's your crossover. He yep. gets bitten by a werewolf. It's it's this character from The Fast and Furious. He gets bitten by a werewolf. The werewolf could have been Jason Statham before because they're going to have a movie together or something, right? <laughs> Um, and, uh, you know, and, and then, you know, and then the Fast and the Furious guys have to stop him without killing him because they really love him, you know, because he's part of their family now, right? And somehow, uh, you know, Dr. Frankenstein's the villain or something. He gets involved and maybe, like, he's going to resurrect Dracula to steal a nuke or something. Um, and they all drive, and again, they all drive, like, 60s funny cars. Because, um, of course, they do. Why not, right? I mean, I mean, did you guys see the, like, eighth Fast and the Furious movie? It's not that much weirder than what I'm proposing right now, honestly. So, that's no, fine. I stand by it. I have never been so moved to write fan fiction right now than I have. Wow. That, I'm, I'm all in, man. I, I want to see this film. So, Universal, give Orin a call. Um, yeah. Let's, let's start that Kickstarter now. Yeah. And we'll, we'll, we'll raise the funds for it. Right. <laughs> we, can do, uh, we can raise the funds for like a, a proof of concept right we can send it to universal um, and not get sued at all yeah no not even well that, that's why we send it to them rather than just making it ourselves i mean if we wanted if we wanted to get sued we just go outside and make it right now like it's halloween there's like a costume shop open right i can get like a wolfman costume we can get a car and uh one, one of these guys can be the rock i don't know um uh, okay well Sometimes people ask me how I managed to talk about classic monsters at a Lovecraft festival. And, and you know what? I don't know and I don't care because conversations like this happen because of it. Um, Oren, you're the man. Let's get you on the show proper. Let's pick a movie that we haven't talked about on the show and, and spend about an hour and a half chatting about it. You up for it? Yeah, absolutely. I actually just bought like a really nice mic so I could do podcasts and stuff from home. So, yeah, that I'd love to do that. That'd be great. Do you have anything coming up that listeners should keep an eye out for? Um, so at this festival, my, my outside of that amazing fan fiction, that is. Oh, well, right. That's not, that's probably not actually coming up as much as I <laughs> want it to be. Um, at this festival, my, uh, my first collection got reissued in a nice, like deluxe hardcover edition and it just launched, you know, here at there this weekend and it's, um, available from Strix publishing, which is S T R I X. And, uh, it's, um, it's called never about the devil. And it, it was originally published in 2012 and the publisher folded for various reasons and, um, so it's now out in a really nice hardcover and it looks really good. And if you like classic monsters, you'll probably like it. It's got, um, it's got, uh, no- my novella, the mysterious flame is in it, which is super, super like old universal monster movie inspired. It's about a golem and he's fighting a monk who can like bring the dead back to life and stuff. It's really good. You know, lots of, lots of big, dark haunted monasteries and weird angles and sh- <laughs> Um, and, uh, but you know, it's, it's out. I've got a lot of short stories coming out. Um, hoping to get a third collection out by, uh, maybe next year, but publishing is slow and finicky. So who knows? It may be 2019 if we're all still alive by then. Uh, but hopefully next year there'll be a third collection out as well. So mostly just short stories, various places, and then, you know, more collections coming soon. Fingers crossed. No one can see me crossing my fingers on the radio. I realize as I'm doing it. Do you have a face or a web page or Facebook presence? Something listeners can key into online. Yeah, I'm at uh, I'm at orangray.com. It's uh, O R R I N G R E Y. Uh, I'm Orin Gray on Facebook and on Twitter. Um, and if you go looking for me and find someone else, uh, you can tell me I'm me. I'm always a little like wind up plastic skeleton. So if you see a little like wind up plastic skeleton with a red bow tie, that's me always. So that's I'm pretty active on both Facebook and Twitter. So you can find me there, and I'm always happy to talk about old monster movies and. Uh, my Fast and the Furious universal mashup premise here. 
Um, so, you know, whatever, whatever you guys, yeah, yeah, just any, anytime, anytime I'm always up for that. Seven young people shipwrecked on a mysterious island. The island was deserted. Not even birds or animals dared to come here. What did they find? Seaweed, fish, and turtle things. Anything we can eat, as well as snakes and lizards. Just let me finish. There's a lot of grass growing around here. You can eat the roots. You can eat the roots of a lot of plants here. Never thought of that, did you? They were driven to the edge of starvation. Food was scarce, and they were forbidden to eat the mushrooms that grew on the island. Fear and hunger turned them against each other. But Tango will help me live. I haven't been hungry since I left the ship. Mamie. Oh, help me. Help me. Please. Can't we eat the mushrooms now? That would really be the end of us. Akiko! monster. Can they escape the dreaded Matongo? You'll find out when you see Matongo. So how would you describe a podcast like The Shared Desk? It's a podcast that took its sweet time to do a promo. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think that goes without saying. I mean, you could say The Shared Desk is a podcast about collaboration, because that's what we do. Wait, 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 wait. There's a lot more to The Shared Desk. You got our Loot Crate looky-loo. Oh, what's in the box? And then... What we're doing when we're not writing, usually it's pretty nerdy. Nerd! And then there are the drop-ins. Has the whole world gone crazy? Yes, there are drop-ins. And we love having guests on the show. It's the shared desk after all. And if it's Katie or Lauren, you get some lovely singing as well. So find the shared desk on iTunes, Stitcher, or at thesharedesk.com. The shared desk. Two writers, one podcast, different different points points of view. Watch out for them. A menace never known to man or beast before. An endless horde of crawling, crushing, gigantic creatures. So horrifying, there was no word to describe them. Watch out for them. Watch out for Warner Brothers' screaming new shock sensation, them. Yes, I saw them. They were huge and scaly, and they had gigantic jaws, and and then one came at me. Kill one and two take its place. This is the endless onslaught of them, clawing up out of the earth from mile-deep catacombs. See them, the most astounding journey into terror ever taken. Starring James Whitmore, Edmund Gwen, Joan Weldon, and James Arnett. Them! 
Alright, we're going to try this, and I do not have the uh, attached microphone. We're taking it straight from the Zoom, but we're inside a, a closed space, so hopefully the sound will be okay. If not echoey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we'll call it ambiance. This Ooh, is it. Yes. It's the end. The end of the show, end oh. of, of the festival, and, and the end of Monster Kid Radio. I'll throw it back to the studio for a couple things at the very end, but the studio. <laughs> it's not the end of Monster Kid Radio. This episode of Monster oh, okay. Kid Radio. Well, you said it's the end of Monster Kid Radio. It's no, like, no. no, don't do that. You no. cause a panic. <laughs> it's not happening. <laughs> so uh, Chris and I are sitting in my car in the parking lot on top of the Rite Aid in the dark. The windows are getting all steamed up. Let's get some hot podcasting action in here. All right. So what did you think overall? Oh, I loved it. I always love it. I mean, Brian and Gwen do such a great job. They bring in so many, you know, I mean, the movies are interesting, but it's just hanging out with all the people who are there. There's, there's, they bring in so many talented writers and artists and, more people than you can meet in a weekend no matter how hard you try you're not going to meet everyone you're not going to bump into everyone you want to but just the people you do are so terrific to talk to so great to listen to it's it's for me it's in it's i think you said it earlier it's invigorating it, it really is it is um i'm going to talk a little bit about my history with this thing again when i first started coming to this thing is back on the heels of me still thinking I was going to be a filmmaker when I grew up. So I would always walk out of this thing thinking, okay, next year I'm going to have a short film and it's going to be in that thing. And I would sit down and I would write stuff and that sort of thing. And eventually I did get a short film in this thing. Um, it, it wasn't very well received. It wasn't one of the shorts blocks and uh, people were kind of laughing at it and and uh, a lot of, what was that kind of thing. And that, that pretty much ended <laughs> my I want to be a filmmaker when I grow up phase. Um, and really, their, their objections and criticisms were incredibly valid. Um, but uh, yeah, enough about that. Anyway, so <laughs> here's the thing. I now walk away from this thing thinking, okay, I'm going to write. And that's something I can do without a crew. Uh, that's something I can do without a video camera. And uh, I'm excited to uh, try to put some words down on paper again. I, I know it's something I've been playing with a lot lately, and I feel even more motivated now. Uh, what about you, man? Oh, yeah, this got me motivated to get back to work on my stuff. Um, yeah, um, <laughs> got me motivated to... Um, we did, um, did we drop hints about what's happening um, yet? Well, we did say on a panel that may or may not have actually been recorded. Oh, that's right. That was it. So, uh, but yeah, we are producing, Chris and I are co-producing an audio drama written by Chris that will be on the show, uh, or part of the Monster Kid Radio Network, excuse me, the plan is next year. Yeah, and this has reinvigorated me to get that thing going again, to start getting people scripts so they can take a look and see, you know, maybe get some auditions happening. We've got a few people uh, lined up, but we need more. Yeah. Um, so uh, that invigorated me. I'm working on a few projects other than the radio show that i got to get back on. Um I had a little bit of a downside a couple of weeks ago, and this is just, uh, I just kicked me back in the, uh, back, uh, it kicked me in the button once, made me want to get going again. <laughs> I think that's a long way of saying, wow, this was great. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, we learn a lot, we make some connections, we make some new friends, we reinforce our old friendships, 
we, we take some inspiration from either the movies we watch or the panels we sit in on or participate in um, and the people that we meet and like just chatting with Orrin Gray. I mean, I'm, I'm really looking forward to having him on the show in the future. We never really made it happen, but I think he's one of us and, and, oh. and or, or we're one of him or something. There's, there's something there. And, and you know, I, I think he's going to be somebody that we call an old friend next time we see him. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I love talking with him. Um, there's so many people I just... I can't even name them all, and I can't even think of them all, because, oh, man, it's the last day. It's over. <laughs> wow. I don't want to go through and start trying to name everybody on the off chance. One of the people that we forget to mention because we're exhausted is listening, and I don't want to offend anybody. But I do want to say shout-out to uh, D.B. Spitzer, the man behind the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos podcast. It was cool to meet him in person. He gave me a cool guy sticker. Mm. I gave him a cool guy postcard in exchange. Yeah. And uh, he was on a panel that you guys have already heard part of and uh he actually inadvertently inspired something in me uh to maybe start working on another audio drama kind of thing or or something um so shout out to him and of course shout out to sean hode who disappeared i assume he was shutting down <laughs> I, I i feel awful i wanted to get him on the show so we're just gonna have to do something with him through skype or something and and it's a it's Byron Craft, isn't it? The, the, his partner there at the table this mm-hmm. time around, who is an incredible author. It was great to meet him. Um, it was just it was a really good time, and I just am really glad we did it this year. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's been an experience. Yeah, I, I had a great time. Oh, I can't even describe how much fun I had this weekend. And... I really can't describe it because I'm really getting tired. <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh, oh man, uh, reality yeah. crashes in tomorrow, but the afterglow of the cosmic horror and insanity will remain. <laughs> I don't want to wash the slime from the tentacles off just no, yet. No, no. There, there's your visual. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a good time. Um, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. A big shout out to Dominique for being on the show earlier. And of course, huge shout out to my man, Chris McMillan from the Shadow Over Portland. Shadowoverportland.blogspot.com. There's always a link at the website at monsterkidradio.net. Go check him out and support him. Chris, thanks for uh, being along with me with the recorder pretty much the entire time. It was pretty awesome to have, you know, uh, you know, have somebody uh, to experience these things with. So that was cool. Yeah, and thanks for having me on the show again. I really love hanging out with you and talking monsters on the mic (laughs) okay i am back here in the monster kid radio headquarters studio castle the mkr dungeon i whatever i'm here it's a few days removed from the lovecraft film festival on cthulhu con con and uh, i'm still trying to recover I, i have so many wonderful thoughts and, and, and slingering feelings that refuse to let go of me like they've suctioned onto my enough of the tentacle uh, analogies anyway here's the bottom line I've said it before I'm going to say it again the Lovecraft Film Festival is very very important to me there's a ritualistic aspect to it when it kicks off October man I know Halloween season is finally here. And, you know, by the time this episode goes out, we're actually almost halfway through October. I I feel like, man, I could hold on to this feeling for months. That's how recharged and and energized I get after this thing. It means so much. 
to me and, and to be included and to be part of the show. Big thanks again to Brian and Gwen for inviting me as a guest and for involving me in various aspects of the festival and convention, not just the panels. The panels were great and I love doing the panels and the presentation. I'll talk about that here in a second. But to be asked to moderate the Q&A with Barbara Steele after the first screening of Black Sunday Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> uh, I know the audio quality wasn't as high as parts of the show, but I hope that you could hear my excitement and enthusiasm about being on stage with this living legend, this legendary performer and talent and, and kind of one of the last connections that we really have to a golden or even silver age of horror. Barbara Steele was so gracious and answered every question with a smile and with grace and with a little bit of attitude. And it was nice. It was a really good time. Overall, the festival, thumbs up from me, tentacles up from me, had a really nice time. There were people that were not there that I normally see there that I, I missed. And there were several people there that I didn't get a chance to record with Sean Hode being one of them. And, you know, I just really never found the time to connect with a few other people as well. Sean, if you're listening, buddy, we really need to get you back on the show proper. Let's do a full on episode about robot monster. Okay. You and me, you and me and Roman. Anyway, made some new friends made some new connections, got involved with an upcoming project that'll be announced in November. And you heard Chris talking about it. We talked to a handful of people at the festival about our own upcoming audio drama uh, prospects, projects, ideas, things that'll be coming to the Monster Kid Radio Network later uh, next year, actually, in 2018. It's 2017 still, isn't it? Uh, 2018, you'll see these things materialize. Again, top-notch everybody from the Hollywood theater to the people working the concessions to the people that put up with us taking over the Hollywood senior center for the weekend. Just what a wonderful, amazing time. So thank you to everybody who was involved. I can't wait till next year. Now there are a couple of things that you did not hear in this recording that I, I wanted to include. And here's what's missing. First of all, I was on a panel with Chris McMillan, Tim Urin, Andrew Lehman, Scott Glancy, and it was moderated by Chris McMillan. It was about old-time radio and weird fiction. Something happened. I don't know what, but my recorder didn't take it. I, I, it just didn't pick up at all. I got like maybe 30 seconds of us sitting down, and then it just stopped, and I don't know why. I don't know what happened. I don't know if it was a technical thing or, or something about my Zoom recorder not being attended and it just kind of died. It's really disappointing because it was a great conversation. So I'm really sorry about that. I'm sorry to the panelists and I'm sorry to the moderator, Chris, for that happening. Also, you didn't hear the time that I got to introduce the Black Sunday screening on Sunday. Now, Barbara Steele wasn't there for that, so it was just the movie, and I got up on stage and talked a little bit about that. I'm going to sit on that recording for, well, a later date. Also, I have about half of the Cthulhu Mythos Primer panel that I did not play as well. I'm going to sit on that for a little while. The big thing, though, was the presentation that Chris and I did featuring classic monster movies in color that happened to have a Lovecraft connection. I want to do something special with that audio and that presentation. So I'm going to be working on that. Stay tuned. That will 
be coming. Besides, this episode is getting really long. Do you want to sit through any more? Yeah, let's move on. There's other things I need to deal with, like some feedback that I've gotten over the past couple of weeks. First of all, I've got an email from Vince S. from Madison, Wisconsin, in which he thanked me for my coverage of Chris Mims' work. I found your commentary both thought-provoking and insightful. Since hearing about your blog from the online home of the films of Christopher R. Mim, I think I will be following your work as well. Vince, thanks for writing in. I'm assuming you're referring to last week's mega episode in which Stephen Turek and I went through the entire filmography of Christopher R. Mim and talked about all 12 movies and its related spinoffs and the expanded universe. It was just an epic episode, and I had a blast doing it. I know it was a long one, so thank you for sitting through it, and I'm glad you enjoyed the show. Thank you, Vince. Now, we also have some voicemails. Hi, Derek. This is Reverend Zachary in Indiana. I've been a monster kid my whole life. I called in uh, during your Planet of the Apes episodes and just wanted to tell you that while I've loved every episode you've done, um, when you really step outside the box from monster kids like Planet of the Apes or your Sword and Sandal movies, really opens up some new movies for us, and I appreciate all the effort you put in. I'm laying here after a procedure at the hospital and been listening to you, and it's really got me through. So thank you for all your hard work. Talk to you later. I think I've said this before. One of the things that I enjoy doing here on Monster Kid Radio is dipping into some of these areas of the sub-sub-sub-genre that I don't have a lot of experience in. So to be able to go through a lot of these Sword and Sandal movies like we did last month or those Planet of the Apes movies, which... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I never saw. Anyway, uh, it's just, <laughs> I love it. It gives me an opportunity to learn more. It's not like they're making new classic monster movies, people like Chris Mim and Joshua Kennedy aside. So to discover a new pool of, of titles to dive into and enjoy is a treat for me. So thank you for coming along for the ride. You said you were at the hospital. Reverend, I hope you're doing all right. Let me know. I'm just just curious. I won't have to play it on the show. I just hope you're doing okay, man. Hey, Derek. How you doing? This is uh, Eric Miles. I live down in Southern California. I just wanted to leave you a quick message. I just wanted to thank you for your podcast and how it has really made things easier to deal with. And what I mean by that specifically is there's a lot going on in the world right now, a lot of tragic events, and we need to escape. And And one way to cope with the things that we witness and hear about and all these events is we do our hobbies, we, whether it's, you know, bike riding or whatever, hiking, whatever. And um, for me, it's living the monster kid life. And I tell you, your podcast, I've only been listening to it for about mm, five, six months now. And um, but I'm listening to it continually. I'm going through the whole series. And wow, it just... When I'm having a rough day, your podcast just brightens it up, and I, I really appreciate that. So thank you. Um, us monster kids and classic horror fans, we we got to stick together, you know, and um, we have a tight group. And um, I'm sitting here talking to you. I'm looking at my uh, Basil Gogo's posters and <laughs> Frankenstein masks, creature masks, and I tell you, um, I'm having a rough day at work or I see something awful in the news. Um, we're all seeing these things and we need to get away. And once again, your podcast really can cheer me up when I'm down. So thank you so much. Hey, it's, it's October. Happy October. It's the month of Halloween. This is a good time to be a monster fan. And, uh, thank you once again. Take care. Isn't that what this is all about? Movies, books, literature, music, whatever. It's all, 
something to help enrich our minds, but there's still that element of escapism. And, you know, I've tried real hard to keep politics outside of Monster Kid Radio and, and religion and, you know, all of these hot button topics that can divide people. I, I don't want to go down that route because in the end, we're all monster kids. We all love these movies, no matter what side of the aisle we fall on or, or whatever. You know, I just, I love these films and I'm loving that there's so many people out there like you who love these movies living the monster kid life. That is on, you know, the monster kid life. I didn't choose it. It chose me. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> put that on a t-shirt. Maybe I will. I'll put it in the monster kid radio T public store. <laughs> Check that out. Uh, at some point it'll end up there. I'm glad you're going through the back catalog. I hope you enjoy what you hear. The further back you go, the, the rougher some of the recordings get. But, you know, I think the content's still good, and I think the guests are great. Ultimately, that's a big part of the reason why this show has succeeded, is having these wonderful guests either join me in events like Chris or Dominique or Oren, or people who have been on the show via Skype or telephone just having everybody involved and in creating this community of monster kids as virtual as it is, it's really something that I'm striving to continue to do with MKR. So thank you, Eric, for listening. Really appreciate it. If you would like to call in like Eric or the Reverend, you can call us and leave us a voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. Or you can shoot us an email like Vince did at monsterkidradio at gmail. Com. Now, this information is available over on our website at monsterkidradio.net, where you can learn everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes. You can also find a link to our Patreon page where you can become a patron of Monster Kid Radio, like our brand new patron. She just joined up, Christiane C. Thank you for becoming a patron of MKR. Of course, you can find links to everything that we talked about here in the show over at the website as well in the show notes. Links to Oren's page, links to the Shadow Over Portland. It's all there. You can't miss it. Also, at monsterkidradio.net, you're going to see a picture. Now, this was a picture taken by the photographer that was covering the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival. His name is Darren Eskandari, and he took pictures of me on stage with Barbara Steele. Now, I'm going to make sure there's one of the photos on our website. I'd like you to check it out because let's do a contest, a caption contest. When you see the photo, you'll know why I'm saying we should do a caption contest. So write in a caption, email it to me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Let's run the contest through the rest of the month, through the end of October. So you have to Halloween to get this to me. And then in November, we're going to open it up. I'll create a Google survey. Listeners can pick their favorite and you will win a Monster Kid Radio prize package. So go check that out. Again, it's monsterkidradio.net. Also on our website, you'll find a YouTube video of the trailer of the movie that we're going to be talking about next week. Come into the cave of the bat demons. They are waiting for you. They are longing for your blood. They hope you'll drop in to join them in horror of the blood monsters. And you, a ghastly journey into the weird world of the undead. You will feel your flesh crawl and tingle as creeping creatures slither out of the night to satisfy their unholy cravings. But I warn you, don't come to see horror of the blood monsters alone. Bring a friend, bring a fiend, bring your nerve. Horror of the blood monsters in weird color. Rated G T. 
we're going to be tackling an Al Adamson classic, Horror of the Blood Monsters from 1970. And it's going to be fun because I've got old friend Tom Beagler joining me next week to talk about the movie. You know, before that episode, I hadn't seen the movie. Come back next week to see what I thought of it. And, well, Tom really likes it, but the conversation we have, it's a lot of fun. I'm winding down. If you can't tell. So let's go ahead and wrap up the episode. Remember the Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song that we opened and going to close the episode with, which is HPV Lovecraft. It's from the album Ghoulie High Harmony. Director's Cut from the band Genki Genki Panic. They're a surf band based out of Chattanooga, Tennessee. Check them out over at GenkiGenkiPanic.bandcamp.com. Genki is spelled G-E-N-K-I. Or follow the link in the show notes. However you get over there, let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. My name is Derek Kim Cook. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao. Interested in grabbing a couple of burgers and hit the cemetery?